Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Time for episode 202, wherein Graham McMillan and I spend a lengthy amount of time digressing from the subject of the films of Federico Fellini before finally returning to the topic of comics 40 minutes later. Funny books under discussion today include Batman Rebirth, Superman Number 1, Detective Comics Number 1, and Batman and Batman and Robin Eternal, Jughead, Mad Woman of the Sacred Heart, the Keith Giffen John Rogers run of Blue Beetle, the graphic novels Something New and Rolling Blackouts, old issues of Star Trek The Next Generation, Imperium, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, and so much more in this two-hour podcast. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com. And we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy. And thank you for listening. Jeff Lester. Graham McMillan, hello. Hello there, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm fine. Yes, yes I am. My goodness. <laughs> you so cute. I hope so. I hope so. No, seriously, I, I am. I'm, I'm pretty good. And yourself? I am. I've spent the entire day sneezing. Sneezing? I'm wondering if it's allergies. You know, maybe I'm getting sick. Mm, I hope not. But Jeff, let me tell you what is happening mere blocks from my house right now. <laughs> Please do. As we record, whatnot, it is Saturday, June 11th, I think. Yeah, yes. That's it, right, right? Uh, and mere blocks from my house, as I record right now, requiring me to close the windows, otherwise this audio would be completely barked, is a Prince Memorial concert. No. Not, not concert, Prince Memorial party. Wow. I found this out because just about 20 minutes ago, I went out the front and there were people cycling past and there's a lot of people in like purple suits and like women in like ridiculously slinky outfits for being on a bike, right? You know, impractical biking outfits, shall we say. Yes. And I clearly am looking like, what the fuck is going on? Because the neighbor's like, oh, you know what's going on, right? And I was like, no, I have no idea what, what, what's happening. And there's a Prince and Memorial thing happening. Oh, man. Isn't that so great? Uh, that is fabulous. I am That's so sorry you're missing it. I, no, I'm, I'm fine. Just the knowledge that that is happening. Yeah, that that's out there in the world. That is kind of great. Yeah. Right? See? People don't entirely suck. <laughs> Thanks for checking in, listeners. That's it for Wait What, the most positive episode we'll ever do. That's right. We should just cut it short now and get out while we're ahead. It's so, yeah. Um, well, that's great. I actually, as, uh, as you know, but the listeners may not know, I just actually, uh, beat feet to get back here after watching, uh, Fellini's La Dolce Vita at the, on the big screen at the Alamo Draft House here in San Francisco. How was it? It's great. Oh my God. I love that film. You know, it's, it's interesting. Have you seen it? Uh, I saw it. God, I'm so old. I was going to say I saw it in art school, and I was going to be like, so like 10 years ago, let's say 20. Yeah. yeah. I saw it, I saw it long, long, long. To the point where I could not tell you a thing about it beyond the fact that I saw it because we watched a bunch of Fellini films. Mm, I'm, I'm very lucky, I think, because this is, this is still the only Fellini film I've actually ever seen. Soup to nuts. You know, I sat down to watch eight and a half. Uh, recently, and by recently, I mean like mm, four or five years ago, and I, and I, 
and and I made it about I made it about I don't know I want to say four or five hours in and uh, and <laughs> and I just I kind of I kind of ended up having to stop you know it was it was, it was I'm so curious how far you really did make it in yeah I don't I don't know I mean I kind of don't know the great yeah, listeners we should say that Fellini's in half is not actually longer than five hours <laughs> like Jeff is being sarcastic he it just felt like five hours how long yeah. really it's like two right. Uh, no, I think, I think it's probably closer to three. I, I don't know, I could be wrong, cause, you know, La Dolce Vita is, like, three hours and thirteen minutes or something like that, you know? Um, I'm not really sure you get the opportunity. When, you know, once you do that, you can't really go back, you know? I, I you know, <laughs> all of his movies after that, he's like, okay, this is what uh, people is, expect. No, uh, it half is, uh, two hours and twenty-eight minutes long. Oh, really? Oh my god. So, sorry, two hours and eighteen minutes long. 130 minutes. Good yeah. God, that is, that is, that's brief. Um, I probably made it about halfway through, honestly, you know, maybe a little more than, and part of it was I was watching it with Edie and she's just like, I can't watch this anymore. But you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, La Dolce Vita is very much Fellini's dour emo movie. I mean, there's like brilliant hedonistic stuff in it, like there is with all the rest of it. But it's interesting when, for me, when you watch eight and a half, You've got Marcello Mastroianni, and he's playing, you know, a character that's very much a sort of a Fellini stand-in, and he's like a, a blocked uh, film director, screenwriter, who's like trying to, you know, come up with the next idea for his movie, and meanwhile, he's being distracted by all of his very his wife and his various mistresses and his, uh, you know, erotic and his fantasies. Past and, yeah. yeah. And uh, La Dolce Vita all takes place more or less in the present, but it's, you know, it's Marcello Mastroianni playing, you know, a Fellini surrogate in a lot of ways in that he's a supposedly a journalist, but very much like just so, so on the, the fluff end of, of pieces, you know, and just kind of floating on well, the end of society life. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, He's a journalist in the, I was going to say in the European sense, which sounds like I'm damning all European journalists, but like in the way that like, cause, cause mainland Europe especially has like gossip magazines, which are a, a genre in and of themselves. And isn't he want, isn't he a journalist for like that? Yeah. Isn't it, it, that it always like seems to be. Yeah. Hyper tabloids journalist. Yeah. He's like, he's like a tabloid journalist. He's like a celebrity journalist for the most part, except. You know, yeah, so whatever he ends up chasing, there's that whole sequence where there's the two kids who've, you know, seen the Madonna and he ends up going out with his girlfriend to report on that. But, you know, people talk about uh Marcello as actually this really good writer and he's supposedly, you know, supposed to be working on this book that he can never quite get going in part because he's always being interrupted by, you know, all of his, you know, his clingy girlfriend and all of his various mistresses and his romantic obsessions. And it's in some ways, it's almost like the same movie, except eight and a half is kind of eight and a half is the Graham McMillan movie. And La Dolce Vita <laughs> is like the Jeff Lester movie. You know what I mean? Like I, I really don't. And I'm fascinated by you saying that. <laughs> so, so in eight and a half, and like I said, I didn't see the whole thing, but it's very much a, how do he is? It, it's it, it's. How do you say this now? The Instagram McMillan movie. Watch yourself, Lester. Oh, it's I exactly. I'm not. I'm not too worried here. I, it, it's it's uh, simply it's more life affirming. You know, like he's got he, he 
Fellini at some point has gotten over his kind of sour judgmentalism and has kind of, he's in that process of learning to love all the freaky stuff. Like, you know, and La Dolce Vita is very much about someone who is attracted to the freaky stuff, but is also haunted by God and is kind of convinced that if he fully embraces the stuff that he is into, he's just going to be destroyed, which... Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's the... It, I, I was actually just looking at Wikipedia as we are talking about this, and I didn't realize that eight and a half comes immediately after La Dolce Vita. Yeah, it's I, like... I thought there was, like, a significant difference between them. Mm-hmm. But eight and a half is the... It's the, like the cliche Fellini film in a lot of ways. Yes, exactly. You know, because he does, as you say, embrace the freakiness. Mm-hmm. And the Dutch Vita is much more straight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, by the... T- so yeah, it's I, I like that sort of straight version of, of it. And I also just like that idea that it's kind of, you know, even in his own way, um, Marcello is... is searching for God, I suppose. And then by the end of the movie, when he doesn't find it, you know, it's like he and his buddy Steiner are both these two guys. Steiner's kind of the angel and, and Marcello's kind of the, the devil. And, uh, you know, in the end, essentially I, I feel that both of them finally tip to the fact that there is no God out there whatsoever. And, you know, both of them sort of end, end up in kind of bad ways. And so when you see eight and a half and I watched it, I was like, okay, let's, let's dig into this. Fellini's kind of like, ah, nah, you're fine. You know what I mean? Like it really <laughs> is just like, like I said, it's that Graham McMillan thing. It's like, he's into the freaky stuff, but he's also more inherently optimistic. I mean, you know, he's, uh, the character is, you know, definitely a, a, a rascal and an adulterous cheat. Uh, but he's, you know, but he also is able to see the comedic side of his life. And and whereas the same character in La Dolce Vita can really only see, even after, you know, he would he would almost rather believe in, in damnation than just nihilism, I suppose, you know? Yeah. And, and... And that, so that's that's how I break it down between the two of us. <laughs> so I, I, have, I have two things to mm-hmm. sort of uh, to say in response to this. One of which I'll get over super quickly. The other which actually will take us on to comics. Really, um, first is I haven't seen it in half also since our school. So mm-hmm. you know, twenty years. But the other, like a month ago, maybe mm-hmm. um, Kate got nine from Netflix. Nine oh. being the remake mm-hmm. musical remake of mm-hmm. eight and a half which is a wacky ass film jeff um but it's interesting that you know you're talking about oh you know eight and a half is much more optimistic and and, and you know embracing mm-hmm. the weirdness yeah because nine is not <laughs> well yeah uh, I, I, have you seen nine i haven't i haven't uh, although... nine, is, nine is all fucking melodrama and all you know, it, it takes the structure of Eight and a Half mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to an extent. It's a filmmaker, again, haunted by his romantic and erotic past. Mm-hmm. Um, but haunted is the, the, the main term. Yes. Like, he is self-destructing because of this. And everyone makes all these melodramatic and bad decisions. Right. In, in, in the piece as well. well and it was like, oh, it's like, 
a part of me almost wants to say, Jeff, watch nine. <laughs> <laughs> See if nine is the version of eight and a half that you wanted. Well, you know, it's kind of singing. <laughs> it's kind of funny because, it's of course, added fairy. when I, when I saw the trailer for nine, one of the things that I loved is someone very smartly and sensibly basically dresses up Daniel Day Lewis to look a lot like Marcello Mastroianni in La Dolce Vita. It's a lot of his, his whole sunglasses and suit vibe. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but sort of darker suits. And it's, I think it's worth, I think, and it could be wrong cause, cause yeah, there, there's, a, a crucial piece of the puzzle is, um, all that jazz, the Bob Fosse film yep. that is also kind of, uh, takes, a lot of the structure from eight and a half and really goes to town with the depressing side of it. So I don't know if it was just the seventies where everyone was like, but it wouldn't well, surprise me I, if nine kind of, cause nine, nine also originated around that same era. Yeah. Nine was like created for the movie. Nine was a set show mm -hmm. decades before it was a movie. Exactly. Uh, and, and did so Fosse do the uh, choreography for it? Do you know? Not the movie. Well, no, certainly uh, not the movie. But... Maybe the stage show? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I have mm -hmm. no idea. Um, I, I, okay, other thing. I only discovered this this week, and you maybe already know this, and maybe this is the thing that everyone knows. I did not know that Fellini worked on a Submariner film in the 60s. Oh, my God. No, I did not know that. That's Apparently, amazing. Fellini, because he was friends with Stan Lee somehow, because Stan Lee weirdly had these relationships with filmmakers in the 60s. European um, filmmakers is yeah, also what Fellini apparently genuinely did work on a potential Submariner movie. Oh, man. Well, that wouldn't surprise me, of course, because, you know... That's but, I mean, can you imagine? Because think about what Fleeney was doing in the 60s. Imagine if he had made a Submariner movie. I know. I know. It, it's, it would be kind of amazing. Uh, well, you know, I think it, it – I mean, I think you probably know this because I didn't know about the Submariner film. But, you know, Fleeney grew There's up – There's a Surfer one in there somewhere, right? Oh, what's that? Someone else was working on a Silver Surfer movie. Or yeah, the same I want to say. I want to say it was. Shit, it wasn't. It wasn't Resnay. It, it was. There was. There was another guy who was there. It was. I want to say it was. It was Resnay or. Uh, shit, is Resnay the guy who directed uh, last year at Marion Bot? I think it is. Um, some other dude, and I was like, ooh. Uh, but in fact, uh, for those who want the extra little bit of film connection, I know people. Chances are good they already know this, but Fellini was a huge fan of Flash Gordon growing up as a kid. And uh, so one of the great things that's really fun about the 80s remake of Flash Gordon is how much they Fellini up the production. Um, <laughs> oh, there's a, so many things that are created by the 80s remake of Flash Gordon. There, there I mean, are. That, that film is... I remember seeing that film as a kid and thinking it was great. Like, just not even ironically. Genuinely just loving everything about it. Right. Everything. And then you see it as an adult. And it's staggering how, like, knowingly camp it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, it, it, it's all, all this subtext, which is barely subtext. Well, that that you do miss as a kid, you totally do. Mm, it, I guess it depends. It, it this is where the I, age I, I, difference I, I, between yeah, you and I really age, kicks in. Were, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because when I saw it, five or six when it came right, out. exactly. So of course you're going to miss all of that, and then it's amazing. Uh, you know, I had this weird. Uh, 
I, I, it's the weirdest thing in the world to be like, I don't know, whatever it was, 14 or 15 years old and be a Flash Gordon purist, but I totally was. So when I went and saw that movie. How could you be a Flash Gordon purist when you were a kid? Well, see, this is that weirdo thing. Uh, um, we, <laughs> my parents, in, also, you're not that much older than me. It only came out in 1980, Jeff. It's at 80. Okay, so it's so I was like 14 years old. But I, I tell you, I was incensed. Uh, and part of the reason why is because when I was growing up, my parents in their to try and deal with the constant me and my two brothers, we were essentially a plague of locusts on feet. You know, so it was, we were constantly hungry, constantly eating, constantly pestering them as to like, what's for dinner? What can we eat? Anyway, there was a local pizza parlor that we went to and back in, I don't know if it's probably true for all of them, but like pizza parlors in the seventies, they would actually have like, uh, at least the ones where I grew up, a lot of them had like an actual film projector and a screen and they would show short films you know they would show the i don't know oh, whatever the it was. movie reels that yeah, is like 20 millimeters series. exactly yeah. so so it was it was kind of a it was kind of a great film education because we would go there and they would show laurel and hardy shorts they would show these like little um disney one reelers that were basically the climax of the good disney films so like the the amazing sequence uh, where it's like the prince versus the dragon at the end. It's the fucking climax of Sleeping Beauty. I've never seen the rest of the movie, but I've seen that climax like six times. Anyway, one of the things that they had that was perfect, so they had the original Flash Gordon serials starring Buster Crab, and I and they would show basically one of them a week, and that was when I was younger, and those were the ones that completely did it for me. One of the things that was great is because it came out of RKO, they, uh, I mean, it's like the world's cheapest, uh, sets and animation is literally just like cart, you know, little cardboard models with sprinklers oh, yeah. in the, and moving back and forth on wires. Uh, but I, but on top of that, they also had stuff where I want to say it's like forbidden, right? They had shit that was basically stock footage from like old Cecil B. DeMille movies from the 20s that they cut in where the budgets were really high. So it it also helps that they don't make any sense. So every once in a while you'd cut to like hordes of mobs, like, you know, it's supposed to be them storming, uh, you know, Ming's castle. And it's pretty much like the orgy sequence from some Cecil B. DeMille Bible movie, which is, you know, the dissonance is shocking but you know but man so so i grew so i grew up weirdly watching the original 1930 serials in a weirdly like go every week see an episode kind of fashion so i was a huge huge flash gordon fan and so when they redid it i'm like oh this is great and of course but i went and i'm like what is with this unbelievable camped out shit? Because it was, you know, it was campy as all. I mean, it's, it's it's amazing. It's genuinely yeah. amazing when you see it these days. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I I was like, this is an outrage. They are not treating <laughs> my comic book character at not all seriously. Cap. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you know, honestly, um, what's great is then I think it came on HBO, which we had access to, and I watched it thirty five hundred times because 
of oh, the not so subliminal uh, subtext yeah, kind. I was just it, it's Dale and whatever Ming Seltra is, especially the bit where where Flash has the thought helmet on and he's like, "This chick's really turning me on." Yes, exactly. Which is just so goofy. It's not surprising that it's. I think it's Lorenzo Semple Jr. who also did the Batman TV show. Uh, worked on the script and uh, what's the name? What's the name of the damn princess? She's the one who really gets kind of Fellinied out. In fact, there's a couple of shots of like her with these, you know, dwarves, which was always like a Fellini staple. But Princess Aura, there's one point played Sora, by Ornella right. Moody. Yeah, she's walking around in her fur in in that thing that's kind of like a Bob Gucci, you know. It's like it's like they just ripped it off Cher and threw it on Ornella Moody, and she was. I was convinced she was not wearing panties and this thing was like cut up to her neck. Swear to God, I ended up seeing that movie like nine million times. <laughs> and also there was part of me, it was like when they cast <laughs> Timothy Dalton as like James Bond, I was like, sorry, James Bond franchise, you will never recover. You know, because I mean, they did once they got rid of Timothy Dalton, but th- that was for me, I was like, oh, Jesus, they were kind of like, well, we got rid of Roger Moore. Who's going to camp it up for us? You know, hey, wait, did you see Flash Gordon? Timothy Dalton camped the shit out of that. Yeah, let's see what he's up to. What is really funny is this is the second time in this conversation where I've ended up thinking about the Rocketeer. Because obviously Timothy Dalton's my guy in the Rocketeer. Yes, right. Exactly. Which I love. I love the Rocketeer. Very, very much. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I really do. I really love the Rocketeer. Um, But you talking about you growing up in Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. I also grew up in the the 1930s Flash Gordon because the BBC used to show those. What? yeah, uh, and that and King of the Rocket Man, King oh, of the Rocket yeah. Man, they always showed. I've seen King of the Rocket Man at least three times all the way through. Holy shit! I'm kind of envious because they show those. I want to say Saturday mornings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like before you know real programming, right? Or sometimes they got they would show them in between, like you know they have that classic like show that's like 48 minutes, or literally at least over here in the U.S. they couldn't they couldn't even get enough commercials to jam it in. So suddenly there'd yeah. be this weird 15 minute block and yeah. they just throw that stuff on. Like, uh, so of- they had that. And also uh, you talk about Lorenzo simple. There was the, the period when uh, there was a, uh, a TV strike mm-hmm. and the breakfast TV got replaced by reruns of the 1960s Batman show. Wow. Which was like the first time I think I'd ever really seen it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they went through the entire show. Wow. Summer. They do two episodes a day. Wow. Yeah, well, which is the perfect way to do them since most well, that's of them just two it. Episodes. Yeah. It was so great. Yeah. Yeah, that's But that's yeah, awesome. so, so it's one of these weird things where, you know, almost as filler, mm-hmm. I all this great, like, weird, you know, past of of pop culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Anyway, uh, Timothy, I think Timothy Dalton, don't get me wrong, terrible James Bond. Uh, but I really like him in The Rocketeer. I actually really like him in Flash Gordon. But again, he is campy as shit. Well, see, that's it. He's campy as shit. And in fact, the thing that's amazing is, is in James Bond, he's not campy. He's like, okay, let's do this. And, you know, it was sort of the pre-Daniel Craig approach to kind of doing... You're a- completely forgetting about Pierce Brosnan. Come on. No. Although Pierce Brosnan... Was very comfy. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I was I, so. <laughs> the end of the end of the sentences are important sometimes, Graham. I know a lot of people don't believe that because I never get to them most of the time and get distracted. But honestly, it was the pre-Daniel Craig, quote unquote, serious James Bond. You know, the grim and gritty. He's very driven. His buddy gets chewed up by alligators, and he's got a showdown with Robert Davi. But I'm like, 
so he's trying to really be quite serious despite the fact that they, you know, whatever the hell they were doing with his eyeliner, you know, but, but yeah. And then, well, and then, then they bring in Pierce Brosnan and Pierce Brosnan is very much kind of a, like, let's try and strike that right balance again, you know, which sort of makes sense. I think the, the idea that you've got to kind of do a camp bond, but also slightly, you know, serious bond kind of in there. You can't go. Were you a a fan of the, the, um, the Pierce Brosnan film then? I, I, I honestly, I thought GoldenEye was okay. And then I want to say it was diminishing returns by, so that by the time that he's like midnight surfing in the North Pole and he's got the ice palace car thing, I don't, that, maybe that's Tomorrow Never Dies. I don't, I don't remember, but it's, uh, it was so tedious by that point. And I, I honestly, remember, was, were there more? I mean, I feel like there was. There, there was, was like, I want to say there's three or four, right? I mean, there's, there's GoldenEye, there's... There's Tomorrow Never Dies, and there's, there is at least one more. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be. Yeah, of course there is. Let's see, Pierce Brosnan. It's great. It says actor, GoldenEye. So it's like, you know, um, Tomorrow Never Dies, GoldenEye, Die Another Day. Die the, Another Day. Oh and God, right. The World Is Not Enough. So there's like at least... How could I forget The World Is Not Enough with the classic garbage theme song? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can actually it's I think it's it the themes are a good indicator of how the films are gonna be. For example, Skyfall, great theme song. Mm-hmm. Adele singing her little heart out. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty good film. Yeah. Uh Spectre, I could not even tell you what is going on in that theme song. And to be fair, I can't tell you what's going on in that film, apart from the fact that it's at least half an hour too long. Oh, at least. Well, you know, the thing that's actually kind of funny is, is um, I see this. And once again, here's where you and I part ways, because I'm going to say a sentence that you would never cross your lips in a million years. The original theme song by Radiohead was pretty great. And instead they were what? like, wait, I don't think I've heard the original theme song. Oh, you haven't? Yeah, you should. This, for Spectre? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Radiohead guys. I, like, I can't even believe there's a, a Radiohead theme song for a James Bond film. Yeah, there is. That seems so un-Radiohead. Was Tom York, like, sick? You know, I, I have this same sort of, like, snarky shit going on too, but Radiohead has always had a soft spot for movies. Like, they're kind of like, like, you know, music for a film. That's I'm, I'm, on... not, I'm not even being snarky. Like, the idea of Radiohead doing a music for a film, sure. Doing a song for a James Bond film? In they particular... did a song for a James I mean, Bond film, and like, they really dug it. Yeah, I, I know that they cover uh, Nobody Does It Better a bunch, which, you know, one of the best Bond themes. Absolutely. Think. Absolutely. But no, uh-huh. they're, they're uh, yeah, they did, they did a Bond song. I mean, they did a movie song for the Boz Lerman movie. I want to say they did... Of course, Tom York did that song for uh, the Philip K. Dick animated film, Scanner Darkly. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, and Johnny Greenwood's done uh, There Will Be Blood and at least one other, right? Oh, Inherent Vice and The Master, for all for yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, but, yeah, no, no, it's it's not them doing movies. It's literally the Bond movie. Them doing movie. a Bond movie. I know, it's just, I know. It's just, like, such dissonance. Ah, uh, Graham. Well, when this, when this it, podcast is, it, is, is over... It, uh, is it... Which version of Radiohead is it? Uh, it's the version that I like, so it's not going to be the version that you like. No, no, but which, but which version, like, what album, what era would you liken it to? Uh, uh, uh oh gosh, it, it's, um, it's the, it's a lot like, it's almost like if you crossed Pyramid Song off Kid A 
with, uh, God, I can't remember the name of the slow song on, is it Hail to the Thief? I think it's, it's actually slow. It's lovely. It's very piano driven. Um, I'm, I'm curious as hell. Also, how, uh, why did they not go with the Radiohead song instead of whoever Sam someone? I can't even remember who the guy is. Yeah, Sam Smith. Well, because Sam yeah. Smith was huge. He's, yeah, you know. But, yeah, yeah, but on the other hand, fucking Radiohead. No, I know. Well, and the other, well, the other thing is, is that Sam Smith's song, apart from it being like relatively terrible, in some ways, it's sort of in, it, how do I put it? Like, it's as the terrible ra- as the film. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Radio, the Radiohead song has Tom York singing in a falsetto. It's mainly piano driven and there's a certain amount of light orchestration. The Sam Smith tune really goes for well, like. The Sam Smith song is I have listened to Skyfall. Mm-hmm. A lot. Well, Sky- and Skyfall, and Skyfall yeah. was, I've listened to all the classic Bond themes. Well, exactly. The Sam Smith one really is like, I listen to Skyfall a lot. Yeah, yeah. So the Sam Smith one to me is like, we have decided to bring John Barrymore back from the dead, and all he wants to do is go back to being dead, but we will not let him out of this kitchen until he releases, like, the most I- horrific version of his own material. Do you, you mean know? John Barry? Yeah, what did I say? John Barrymore? Yeah. <laughs> John Barry. John Barry, John Barry Moore. I meant more John Barry is what I meant. Yeah. Honestly, part of me was just like, John Barry's dead? Because I didn't know that. I mean, it makes sense. I just didn't know he was dead. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I'm going to be mourning for the rest of this episode. Yeah, you should. Absolutely. And then after that, after we're done, you got to YouTube that, that Radiohead Spectre. And you'll be like, eh, I don't really like it. It's better than the Sam Smith, but that's oh, not yeah, saying yeah. anything. I'm sure it's going to be better than Sam Smith. Yeah. But again, I, you'll also like, say, but that's not the, saying snar- The snarky part of me will be like, so it'll be like half a song and Tommy York would just be saying random phrases. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's uh, whatever, man. Whatever. <laughs> Let's not that's go ba- there. That's basically my comment for every radio. I know, I know, I know. It's that weird, there's just that weird cusp of an entire generation every, of Brits. Like Every single album, there's always like one song I really like. Yeah. And the rest of the album, I'm like, wow, it's like they're, they're two drafts away from actually doing a good song. Or actually having a song. You know, I haven't even heard the last two. And the the last one that came out just recently, I keep hearing like, oh, it's good, it's good, you should really check yeah, it out. Yeah, I've heard a bunch yeah. of people be really, really optimistic about it. But so, again, like yeah. the first couple of singles, I was like, okay, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Radiohead. It's Radiohead for me, and this sounds really like Damning with Fame Praise, and it's not meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Radiohead post... Yeah, post like Kid Kid A is um is very like REM's later latter career. Yeah, yeah. It's like you have the people who love it, mm-hmm. and for almost everyone else, it's diminishing returns. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, I don't know. I'm somewhere. I'm somewhere in the field of both. I mean, I don't know. Like, I love a lot of the stuff post post Kid A, but it's always it's always kind of a sifty sort of hit and miss kind of thing. You know, yeah, I, I feel that in terms of their uh, actually trying to do new things, mm-hmm. they peaked around Kid A or what's the album that came after Kid A? The one that came out really quickly after. Shit, you, Amnesia or the yeah, yeah, Amnesia was what it was called, right? Was it was the sort of the full on quasi ambient one? Yeah, 
Uh, and I, I think that was like them being like, okay, we can do anything. Mm-hmm. And then after that, someone was like, let's try and be like old Radiohead again a bit. Yeah. And, it, and the albums really sort of were between, you know, like, uh, Hail to the Thief is, is, could have been on the band. Yeah. Like that song. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, you know, and and they always have that now. I feel they always have like the songs that you feel they could have done twenty years ago. Yeah, I get that. And I mean, they get, like, then they get their like, oh, Tom's been listening to the FX Twin again tracks in there as well. You know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I one of the things that I think is always rough uh, for Radiohead is that I feel that um, Tom York's constant not comfortable in his own skinness sort of keeps them in this weird like. He's he either wants to do something completely different, or he more or less sort of grud- you get the sense it sort of grudgingly concedes to do the same old thing, you know. And so there's kind of that weird push and pull, I guess, that you know should feel like tension, but actually doesn't. It doesn't feel like creative det- tension. It sort of does feel like, and I feel that you see that in bands like. Uh, REM or God help me like you two, you know, where it's like they get, they get big and then there's like this weird split in the band. That's kind of, I, I don't actually know if that's the case with Radiohead actually, but I know with REM I'm, and YouTube. I'm supposed to, so, to right? actually be snarky and be like, yeah, you can definitely hear it in Coldplay's recent material. Yeah, that's right. Who knows? They're Maybe you can. forwards and then they're, the, the Chris you know is what's, like, I don't know. Let's do yellow again. See, you, you laugh, but I, I bet you, and this is, this is no joke. Like Dave Matthews band went through that shit. That's the <laughs> thing that's completely I weird. I never know. Thankfully not being American. Uh, I never went through a Dave Matthews band period. I, I will actually having taste. I never went through a Dave Matthews band phase either. But I mean, that's 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 but neither like, here I, nor I, there. I couldn't even name a Dave Matthews band song. And just today, I was thinking about all the terrible Britpop songs that I actually have affection for. Oh, I know, Graham. Oh, I know. Uh, but like, I couldn't even name a Dave Matthews band song. That's fine. You're not you're not missing anything, of course. But I'm sure you could. I, sure, I could, but I, but that's just because I had a radio and I was trapped in this goddamn country. I mean, I can name a Hootie and the Blowfish song, but that doesn't mean that I actually enjoyed it at any point. You oh, know, I can't name a Hootie and the Blowfish song. That makes me kind of sad. That does it make you sad? Just a little. Uh, you're not missing. I feel I should know at least one. Do you know? Uh, it's like you know, uh, you know, Blind Melon. Everyone can think of No Rain. Mm-hmm. Or um, Counting Crows, everyone can think of Mr. Jones. Uh, Bare Naked Ladies, everyone can think of One Week. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like bands of that era. And mm-hmm. Hootie and the Bullfish go in that thing. And I can't think of one Hootie and the Bullfish song. I can think of that one, but I don't even know what it's called. And I'm, I refuse to I refuse to look <laughs> it up. Besides, again, there's this thing where I got to admit, my I, my skin only starts to wrinkle at a certain point. Like, we can only go so far down this road because, you know, the thing that there's there's nothing more fraught for me than talking with a Brit about music. And this this comes up in our conversation, Scram, where there's always some point where you're like, oh, yeah. I can't name it Dave Matthews. And then like five minutes later, you're, you're talking about the one good Oasis song or the five good Oasis <laughs> I know, that's just it. Earlier on today, I was thinking about the fact that, um, I have completely unearned nostalgia for terrible, like British 90s songs. Mm-hmm. In part because I was at the age where like things happen, like right. important yeah. things happen. Yeah. Uh, and so for example, 
Right Here, Right Now by Jesus Jones. Oh, God, yes. It's a terrible song. Oh, Jesus. Like, like unerringly terrible. Yeah. And yet that genuinely evokes emotions in me because that was that was a song that was on permanent fucking radio rotation mm-hmm. when grandmother died. Oh. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I have like this unerring holy shit, do you hear that? Oh, is it a prince in the background? I... <laughs> it's it's the prince bike people riding past. Oh man. Where are they playing? I can't quite hear. Hello. I don't know. I'm listening. I'm, oh. I'm trying to make out. Because the guy with the speaker is written past by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slipper's at you, Jeff. That, for me, it's for the new. No, but like right here, right now. So I have, I have this, like, I have this unearned affection because, mm-hmm. like, it's just one of those big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actually came up because I also have the same thing for, and I can't remember the name of the song, but everyone knows the song it is. This is my pumpkin song that's despite of my rage, I'm still just around the cage. Whatever that song is called. Oh, yeah. What is that one called? It's called something really fucking weird. Well, yeah, because it was it was the, the it was the lead single from Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Exactly, Melancholy was spelled Melancholy. Yeah, he was. Um, yeah, yeah. It, Billy I, Corgan I, I, needed to work on the puns, definitely. Yeah. That song uh, was again on like permanent rotation when I was going through a, a breakup. Mm. So again, I have this like completely unearned like thing about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's true. Like I I will defend, even though I have no right to, like menswear B sides. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I like everyone should be like, no, you right. shouldn't even defend the menswear A sides. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You're doing menswear B sides. Yeah. Why? Well, you know, that's yeah, yes. like that, that's the music of my youth, mm-hmm. uh, and I was of the the age group mm-hmm. where you get like weirdly irrationally attached to that shit. Well, sure. Right. Uh, but that's why part of me is like, Jeff, you must, like, there must be, like, a Hootie and the Blowfish or something. Not because it's a good song, but because, like, that was the dominant music at a particular time in your life. Well, yeah, but I don't know how to describe it. Like, I'm a little bit... I suppose America doesn't have the dominant music culture in the same way. Yes and no. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. It's a party man from the Batman album. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, I, I, you know, A, I love Party Man. And B, I actually had that weird thing where one of my roommates was in the Party Man video or used to be in the Party Man video, which is kind of amazing. So, Wait, no, no, no. I think surely they still are unless they've recut the Party Man video. No, no, they literally did. They No one ever shows the last two seconds of the Party Man video, which is precisely where my roommate appears. Is that Party Man has been, you know, Prince has been Party Man and he's, he's kind of, you know, jokering it up in the whole thing. And at the very end of the movie, uh, the video, like three cops like break into where he's playing and they sort of cross their arms and sort of shake their heads, you know, their caps, police caps are tipped back. And my roommate is one of them. And literally within two weeks of, because it's kind of the, it's that part in the video where the video, the music ends and then they've got the last little shot and yeah. that shot always gets cut out in like every, cause no one gives a shit. Like everyone's just like, I'm here for, to watch videos, new, random, old or whatever. You're lucky if you can make, if they make it to the end of the fucking song, they're not going <laughs> to stick around for somebody's like laughable six second silent coda. It just gets cut. Like seriously. Oh, oh. What is great is, I've told you before that my first time in America was uh, 1989 when the Batman movie was out. 
and it was out in America before it was out in the UK. Mm-hmm. But I came over to America with my family and I'm 14. 14? Yeah, I would have been 14. And Batman Mania had started in the UK by this point, but the movie wasn't out. Mm-hmm. And Bat Dance, I think, had just come out as a single. It was just about to come out. Mm-hmm. And I, being a 14-year-old comic book fan, I'm like super excited. Right. And I'm going to America. Like, it's America. They've got, you know, American comic stores. This is exciting. And the Batman movie's out. This is really exciting. And we get to the hotel, and the hotel has MTV, which I've never seen before. Wow. Because we didn't, it, I like, either it wasn't in the UK or it was on a, like, it was on satellite and we didn't have satellite or whatever. Right. That probably makes sense. Um, but they played the Batman, vi- the Bat Dance video, which includes the party man video mm-hmm. like the full length version is the whole fucking single wow. like a side and b side mm-hmm. and they played the whole thing wow and this is like the first day i'm in america and like i'm basically we're jet lagged I'm, I'm watching the tv and this comes on i remember it like with the intensity only an overexcitable 14 year old can have right i was like it's a sign <laughs> <laughs> this is a sign oh my god you know i don't it's a sign of like it's a sign because like this shit just would not be on television in the UK as, as I knew it. And I was like, this is amazing. America's going to be the home of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it pretty much worked uh, out. Uh, exactly. Cuts to, mm-hmm. you know, however many years, Jesus Christ, 28 years later. There you go. Well, see, that's it. Your it, first it, time well, in America, your first day. Dreams. And you, you saw, you saw my roommate. You saw Jeff Lester's roommate there. And, uh, and, and, <laughs> Wow, that's kind of weird. Yeah, right? It's, that is kind of strange. It's our destiny, baby. Admit it. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Yes. Welcome to a comic book podcast where Ooh. we've been 40 minutes in. Wow. Talks yeah. around comic books. Sort of. Yeah. Comic book related stuff. Fellini, Flash Gordon, Batman, Bat Dance, Prince. Uh, so yeah, in fact, let's talk, let's talk about Maybe we can talk about some Batman comics just super briefly. People at the at the risk of basically having Graham say all the things all over again. <laughs> I should point out that he actually did a great little column over the Wait What podcast where he does capsule reviews of the first two weeks of DC's rebirth. Uh, I guess they're one shots, you know, so uh, some of them aren't like action and detective don't get one shots. They just go straight into the series. Uh huh. But this Batman Rebirth is like a one shot. Right? It's a one shot. Yeah. So actually, here's a really weird thing. So Batman Rebirth mm-hmm. was kind of disappointing to me. Totally. Uh, was it, you've obviously read it. Was it disappointing to you too? It was. It was indeed disappointing to me. Uh, and uh, I just I should say that I I just went to the comic book store literally for the first time. I want to say in a month, but in some cases it's been two months because there were issues of things that had like come out, sold out. And I picked up the issue after like the vision, for example, as long as we're staying on Tom King, but plenty of Batman rebirths, grabbed it, read it. And yeah, was, Oh, it, it was, I have to say, Absolutely everything that I was afraid Tom King would do with Batman, and I pray to God he changes it up. So, well, okay. So here's the here's the thing that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I have since I wrote those capsule reviews, mm-hmm. I've had a chance to read Superman issue one, mm-hmm. and in the capsule reviews, I say Batman issue one is completely underwhelming to me. It feels like a filler issue. It feels weirdly weightless. But Superman uh, Rebirth is is 
terrible. Right. Like it's just, just is, is gets everything wrong. Yes. Especially for a jumping on point for a book. Mm-hmm. Superman issue one reads like a different fucking series by a different creative team. 100% differently. Mm-hmm. And is so much better. Mm-hmm. Is so much better to the point where I'm sad that Superman Rebirth came out mm-hmm. because I think it will put people off what might end up being a great book. Right. And part of me is like, I wonder if Batman Rebirth is going to be the same thing. Especially because Batman Rebirth was King co-writing with Scott Snyder. And for me, it felt much more Scott Snyder than Tom King. Oh, that's so funny. Um, it felt like the, the worst of both of them because... Yeah, I can see that. You know, because it really is. They got in a room and they started digging into the formalist stuff, but also subtext, the subtext. This is going to sound ridiculously dumb, but I have to confess, like three weeks ago, I was like feeling high, high on the hog. And I turned around and bought like as many Scott Snyder Batmans, uh, on comicsology as I could, you know, for like the 99 cent sale or whatever. So, how do you been getting the series? I I do, but I'm considering I'm going to be getting rid of the floppies before okay, the end sure. of the year. I'm like, okay, I gotta, you know, I'm like, this is might as well stock up. And so, I actually read through the first twelve issues, I guess, of Batman leading up to this, and it was kind of fun to kind of revisit and see the stuff that you know, both Snyder and King work really hard, and they're both super fans of of the subtext. And so Batman Rebirth is literally them playing with the idea of Rebirth with Calendar Man and the fact that Calendar Man is I mean it's 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 a handoff issue. It's literally King being like, "Oh, here you go." You know, Snyder being like, "Here you go, Tom King." You know, boom, Batman's a different character now. It's a whole new yeah, season. Yeah, but but also like Batman doesn't give up. Yeah. Like that, that whole subtext, you know, we're just going to be better because we're going to be better. Right. Is, is at this point super dull to me when it comes to Batman. Well, I, you know, what's so funny is I picked up the 50 issue 52 of Batman and I'm like, I guess I read issue 51, but I was like, oh, 52, I got to read this. It's Snyder's last issue, dumbass. No, fit, fit, yeah, but 51 yeah. is It's, it's James Tinian Ford writing again that. That cliche of a Batman story, but even more cliche. And I was like, ah, oh, no. I mean, there were parts of that issue that were really bad. So when I read Batman Rebirth, I'm like, I guess this is better. Sort of. <laughs> but it's really I, I, not. I would actually know? say that it's not. Yeah. Well. Say that Tynan's uh, 52 is, is on a par. If not slightly better than Rebirth, because oh. Rebirth just well, my problem with Rebirth for Batman and Superman mm-hmm. is that theoretically these are jumping on points, mm-hmm. and both of them pretty much offer no reason to come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like Superman one in particular is just a fucking mess as a jumping on point, right. especially after I've read Superman issue one, and I'm like, oh, so Superman Rebirth literally does nothing to set up Superman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I should say right now, Jeff, because uh, you liked uh, Tomasi and Gleason's Batman yes. and Rob. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gleason as an artist, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You love Superman. 
Yeah, I, I, it's very tough for me because part of me is like, oh, yeah, I would love to pick that up for the team. But I'm also kind of like, nah, I don't know. Like, it's just, I mean, it's, I, it's, it's a little bit of everything. Well, I mean, I'll be honest, at the, at the risk of ripping over, open both our old wounds, I did have a moment where I was in the comic book store being like, ah, oh, after the fucking Watchmen thing, should oh, I, I just. I, I am, I am genuinely surprised you picked up Batman. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, part of my logic, and this may sound incredibly irrational, but, uh, is unlike the, the Marvel stuff where I really care about it, care, you know, kind of cared about the issues that, that, that led to my boycotting. And, and I guess because I cared so much about Marvel, it's kind of painful for me in a way that it isn't for DC. The Watchmen thing really kind of annoyed me and pissed me off, but I also had that feeling of, and this is going to sound really funny, but I was like, you know, if people don't buy their comic books, they're just going to be worse. You know what I mean? Like they <laughs> never would have come around and done that little thing stunt if it hadn't been for the fact that they're kind of like, hey, fellas, look at me, look at me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to I'm not going to essentially be the retailer, the the consumer equivalent of a retailer for DC, the DCU, who was like, yeah, I'm not going to support that title because I'm, I'm pissed at DC. You know, it's like if they're good books, I don't see any reason why I, I wouldn't try them. But that being said, when I was there in the store, and then you picked up Batman Rebirth. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, pa- Batman Rebirth is, it was, it was dull, but you know, it honestly, it reminded me of, it reminded me of the new 52 Batwoman, you know, like, I can see that. Lovely Which to I, look I at. I also think that, yeah, I think that New 52 Batwoman was, oof. Yeah, got exactly. even more oof. We'll see, that's it. At a certain point, you and I both died, dove off. But I was kind of like, eh, this is pretty. I can put up with pretty. And again, the text, the subtext, meta text is all kind of, is fun enough. But the rest of it was really, really dull and, and surprisingly, um, you know, again, I don't know if they blew the reproduction on that last page, but I, you know, talk about a dull fart of a finale. That was, that was just, I don't know, oh, maybe I missed Rebirth? something. Then Batman Rebirth? Yeah, the whole avocado bat cage yeah, thing. I, yeah, it's just, just, like, just like, it's, oh. it's, it just felt like lots of things didn't come off. This is a running theme for the Rebirth books that I've seen. Mm-hmm. That um, if I didn't have such goodwill, for the creators and honestly like for the idea of hey let's try and not be grim and gritty and actually do something optimistic with the characters mm-hmm. um like th- there's so many misfires mm-hmm. like wonder woman is a book that should be better just simply should be better than wonder woman rebirth issue you know and it's, and it's just have you read it? no but i gotta say i read your review and i'm not surprised I'm not surprised. It's just, no, but you would be if you read it, is the thing. Because even though you don't really like Rucka, mm-hmm. like, there are rookie mistakes in that book. Mm-hmm. Like, there's weird things, like, Laura Martin's colors are just not right for Liam Sharp's art. Mm-hmm. And also make the book look like something from 2002. Mm-hmm. The letters are weird. Mm-hmm. There is a rhythm, r- rhythmic first page where, in the last panel, they break their own rhythm. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. and it's things like that. There's all these unforced errors mm-hmm. where you're like, what actually happened? 
And that happens all through these, like Batman Rebirth, Superman Rebirth, Wonder Woman Rebirth, all feel like they were books that were rushed out. Yeah, they and probably were. Them, Maybe they were these extra were, rushed out one shots yeah. or something. Yeah. All of them, and also Green Lantern Rebirth as well, feel like they are less than they are, long, uh, shorter than they actually are. Mm-hmm. Green Lanterns particularly, I thought was like maybe 15 pages as opposed to 20. Mm-hmm. And I think Batman feels really short as well. Mm-hmm. Superman feels amazingly short, but in part that's because they waste a lot of that book. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's okay. So what I was going to say, Superman issue one, Jeff, mm-hmm. it's told from the point of view of uh, Clark Kent's son. Mm-hmm. And it's told from the point of view of he doesn't trust his parents because he thinks his dad is a liar for having a secret identity in the first place, and he's scared of his dad in the Justice League. Hmm. So it's not really a Superman book. Right. It's a Jonathan Kent, and by the way, maybe his dad is actually scary book. Hmm. Which is nothing like Superman Rebirth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, Jonathan, I don't think, is even in Superman Rebirth. Mm-hmm. And then he becomes the lead character in the book with the first issue. Yeah. I, it's, it's an interesting idea. I gotta say, it's, it's, a, it's I mean, it's sort of, you know, I, I don't know. I might, I said, one is good. Yeah. It's just outright good. Hmm. And Rebirth is, Superman Rebirth is not. Well, and I have to say, I, Superman Rebirth I, I, is the one where just the cover alone, cause, you know, cause honestly, if you, if you want me to not buy something, put Doomsday on the cover. That pretty much is the, like, I could be dying of a disease and I would not be buying the antibiotics if, like, Doomsday was, you know, it's like Doomsday chewable vitamins. I'm like, no, thanks. I'll have scurvy, you know? So that's just... So anyway, so I, I know that's not your point. You won't be, buy, your point you won't be buying action comics then. <laughs> that's the Doomsday storyline. Uh, see, I'm just like... I gotta tell you, there's some weird corners. Like, Superman is just... they need They need to... They need to really, you know, they need, what the hell was that name of that burn villain that's like the guy with the big gun, you know, who like had the red bandana tied around his face, blood, blood, was it bloodshot or like, you know, he oh, showed up. Blood sports, the, super, the Superman guy, bad yeah, guy. Yeah, like from the first year. Blood sport, yeah, he's, yeah. he's in like Superman issue three or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. Part of me is like, bring that guy back bring back like st- like they've got to stop the thing with the superman stuff is is like it all seems stuck on okay are we going to do a zod story or a doomsday story how about we do a zod's day story okay perfect you know and i just, know, you know that they actually did that in like just before uh, flashpoint right oh jesus yeah <laughs> I, I, um the uh, I don't know, like there's there's the Superman books are really frustrating. Superman Rebirth is a mess. Action Comics, whatever that Action Comics issue is, five fifty seven, nine fifty seven, I think, right. um, does a lot of things right, surprisingly so, hmm. uh, and sets up a potentially interesting status quo, but also is like and then, then Doomsday, and maybe it's going to be an interesting story. But I'm with you, like Doomsday shows up in the end. A part of me was like, oh, my interest is mad now lessened yeah uh, and it's a shame because i'm interested in seeing the lex luther as superman thing mm-hmm. uh, i'm interested in seeing if dan jurgens actually gets the idea of this is a superman from parallel universe who is 10 years older than all the other superheroes and remembers other versions of them there is actually an interesting story potential there oh yeah it's it's uh, kind of a nice idea 
you know? Right. But, the, but that's like, that's didn't really show up at all in Superman Rebirth mm-hmm. and doesn't show up in Superman issue one mm-hmm. at all. And so there's, so it's, it's, I'm hoping Dan Jurgens does something with it. Um, the idea that there is a Clark Kent that even Superman doesn't know who he is, mm-hmm. is, is, a potentially interesting idea, depending on where they go with it. Like there, there's there's stuff there that's interesting, but then going and doomsday, it's like right. no, yeah, 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 too much here, and you're going to spend too much time on the guy that no one cares about. Um, yeah, that's rasping, rasping. Did you read Detective Comics? Did you read the? the... I I didn't because unlike you, <laughs> I read all of Batman and Robin Eternal, and <laughs> and so I'm just I'm just done. I'm just done. James Tinian for does great work. Tyrion, Tyrion, Tinian. I don't know. I think it is. I, I just, it's, it, it, he doesn't, he doesn't work for me. I just, it's, he's got little bits and pieces or whatever, but it's just, it's just generic blobby bat book for me. I'm sorry. I mean, Batman and Robin Eternal. I was like, okay, let's see where this is going to go. Okay. He's not going to, he's, and, ah. Oh man, that was just such an underdeveloped piece of crap. Um, and it's not really like Batman, Batman Eternal was like a huge mess, but at least it was. I would huge... say Batman and Robin Eternal was better than Batman. Yeah, because you, but you don't know, do you? <laughs> no, I've read, I've read, I've read both in trades now. Oh, have you? Damn you, yeah. Graham McMillan. Uh, you know, Batman and Robin Eternal was probably I don't know, dude. I was going to say, yeah, it's better I, I because like it's got, like, it's trying to do you less. Know. You don't, you don't suck. I was, I was like, God damn you, don't say that based on six issues because you weren't there for that ridiculously underwhelming finale or three of the underwhelming finales. Like that, that Batman. Yeah, but if Batman, Batman Eternal lost me really early on. And it's, I, like I said, I read the whole fucking thing in trade. Yes, absolutely. Um, but Batman Eternal, although it's a mess, and I mean a disappointing, it's, dismal it's, mess. It's a crazy, no one is, is at the wheel mess, Jeff. Yeah, no one's on, no one's at the wheel, but, but on the other hand, it's more, um, that somehow makes it weirdly more ambitious. Like, Batman and Robin Eternal is like, okay, we're going to stay the course, we're going to tell a focused story, and that's fine, uh, but you didn't have, for one thing, you didn't have the highs that, that Batman Eternal did with some of the art, I think. Like, there was only one or two issues in Batman and Robin Eternal where I was like, oh, this art's amazing. Who the hell is this artist put them to work? Where I feel like Batman Eternal had more of those. Maybe I'm wrong. And also, uh, I don't know. It just, it was, it was, they were kind of like, let's do everything at once. And Batman and Robin Eternal really flubs. I mean, it's a 26 issue miniseries with like the world's most undercooked villain and it's running on fumes of you know oh who's cassandra kane kind of deal like it just it doesn't work for me also yeah i i I genuinely would say it works a lot better than batman eternal oh how do i put it like batman eternal is like a car wreck but batman batman eternal sort of by its nature almost had to be a car wreck Batman and Robin Eternal was like, okay, let's go, let's do something safer. And it's so fucking safe. And it's, but it also, to me, it also really does fail. Like, there's no, there's just not any, 
you know, the, I, I remember you way back when we did the round table, both you and Matt were like, I do not buy into the stakes, the, the basically the stakes of the first issue that Batman picked up a gun and killed somebody. Like I'm, I just don't buy yeah. it. And you move it's, all the way closer to it and you never buy it. You yeah, never it's, buy it's, it. It's, uh, cop as, as Hydra agent. Yeah. Pretty, pretty much. Pretty much. It, it's as unbelievable a premise. No yeah. matter how much someone says, no, it's real. You're like, yeah. no, no, it's yeah. not. Yeah. But it, they just, they just, I don't know. I mean, part of it is, part of that could be the nature of the weekly book that you're just not going to be able to land some of those points or maybe, any of the points, but like Batman and Robin internal really does screw the pooch on. I would say just about every single major story, solid story. point. <laughs> and so I just can't, I just can't cut it. So part of me was just like, that's it. I'm done. I was burned. I'm not, I'm not coming back for detective comics. I'm just not, I'm just not. So, yeah, but okay. I hear you liked it. I hear you were into it. Yeah. I, I it's, it's, as, as I said in the, the website, it's great purely because it is not even vaguely trying to break the mold. Mm-hmm. It is literally, here's a bunch of Batman characters. They're making a team. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, sure, Batman family. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, that. that's fine. That, that's, I think there's a market for that book. And it's, it's done competently. Mm-hmm. It's like Aquaman. The Aquaman book is n- not breaking any ground whatsoever. Right. But it's done completely solidly. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I think that's I think that's good. But I think there's part of me that's just I don't know. That, honestly, I really did find myself because it, because of this weirdo job change for me. It's so hard to get into the comic book store. And I'm like, what am I really? going to buy what what do i I care about yeah kind of what do i care about like i really had that thing of like i could probably just sign up for six books eight books and maybe get them you know like pay full price through comiXology and just get them delivered and that'll do me you know that because i'm you know and whatever weirdo old comics and then maybe go into the store once or twice a year and pick up like traits or stuff that matter to me you know, I mean, I got to admit, there's a bunch of books that I did not because I only got to the store Thursday night and then working and then Fellini movie. Like I, I, I liked the majority of the stuff that I read, but it's a pretty small pile. And there's a lot of stuff that I picked up that I'm like, oh, yeah, I should pick this up. Ah, yeah, I started this. Oh, I should give it a, you know, whirl. But I really did find myself being like, I think I'm really kind of at the edge of being done. Sort of like really close. And I I have a certain amount of palpitations of like, oh, Jesus, what does that mean for, you know, the podcast? What does that mean for weirdly my strange like there's 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 way too much of my social life that's kind of tied up in this a little bit. And it's kind of weird to think that I'm going to like make the jump to where people are like. What, your social life, really? Well, I don't know. Like my imaginary social life. I mean, it's sort of. You know, the majority, the majority of the people that I follow on Twitter that I, and, and some of whom I tweet back and forth with, like the conversations that you and I have or with the, the listeners of the podcast, I've got one or two friends who still dive into comics and they're you, they've already taken up the, yeah, I don't really read a lot of modern stuff. I, I picked this up and I didn't but, really get but it. But here's the thing, like, that's fine. 
you know I, what I mean? I, I have I have definitely had those periods, and I've come out of those periods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, one of the things that's been really good for me recently is you know, the rebirth is is fine. It's doing its job. It's not really exciting me with any of the books yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've read things this last week that I've just been blown away by. Oh, me too. And hopefully and we'll get to them totally, in this podcast. So yeah, you know, they're totally unrelated to mm-hmm. to quote unquote mainstream comics. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I agree, and there's part of me that's going to keep my hand in for it, at the very least for that. I mean, I seriously, I've got I've got more good comics to 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 be excited about. But I really did find myself being like, I don't know, it's weird. I just don't think I think I'm at some sort of end where certainly a good chunk of the I I don't know. I'm just I'm going to move into I'm sticking to the taste of the things that I like and the things that I like just may not end up being a lot of a lot of the big two stuff, which is really funny because out of the handful of comics that I'm going to be talking about today, it's not like any of them are going to be like any any listener is going to be like, oh, I've never heard of that book, Jeff. Tell me more. Tell me more about this Walking Dead. What happens in it? You know, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> Jeff, why are you so anti-mainstream? Yeah, right. And it's just, it's, I'm not, I just, I'm just in that really weird zone of, I would, I just, I would rather read a Batman comic from 1967 than from 2017 or 2016, you know, it's just, that's. And that's fine. Oh, no, I know. I, it absolutely is fine. I'm also mostly uh, uh, okay with it. But there is a little bit of, um, I don't know, whatever. It just, okay, it, so, so tell me what is what is great about your Walking Dead. Uh, well, I, I was kind of half kidding. There's some other stuff that I liked more. But okay, honestly, tell, tell well, no, no, but I will you, say... Like, I, I will say that I actually really did enjoy issues 154 and 155 of The Walking Dead. I read them like side by side. And uh, for those who care about this sort of thing, uh, Robert Kirkman's um, Brian Bendis with hair, uh, Negan manages to, spoilers, g- escape from um, the good guys and wander into the bad guy territory and try and uh, make a... Um, you know, deal with the ultimate baddie alpha and uh, that's fun. And then there's also just, I don't know, there's characters that I really sort of, I can't really say care about because walking dead is such a strange book. Like I read the letters pages and people are clearly having such a different experience for me, but there's a couple of like, Oh, finally someone lopped the head off a zombie with a sword. Like, you know, like I'm just like, huh, that was a long time coming, you know? So, so basically to work my way up from like quote unquote stupid to smart, although still stupid, I liked issues 154 and 155 of the walking dead. Then I read Spider-Man Deadpool issue five in which Peter Parker has been shot by Deadpool and Deadpool sort of more or less goes down to hell so that he can like, uh, celebrate like Parker being tortured because he's convinced that he's a bad guy. And then when Peter Parker's not there, has the uncomfortable feeling that he's accidentally killed a good person and has to go about um, bringing Peter Parker back to life. Ed, you're, I, you are definitely you're moving away from the mainstream, Jeff. <laughs> Holy shit. You like The Walking Dead and Spider-Man Deadpool? Keep, yeah, keep, keep, keep laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Laugh it up, furball. Laugh it up. <laughs> so uh, uh, then 
Uh, what I really ended up enjoying was, well, I did the Batman books, which were kind of farts. And then, uh, going, yeah. three issues of the Sheriff of Babylon. That's how far I was behind it. And I don't know if you read issue six, um, which is, it's on, it's on issue seven now. I'm, I'm an issue behind, but I couldn't tell you the issue numbers at this point. Okay. So yes, issue seven came out. Issue six is God shed his grace on the, which is the, oh no, I'm sorry. Issue five is what I loved because issue five is the two characters get drunk issue, which is amazing. Where it's, um, Chris, the main character, gets drunk with the wife of Nasir, his partner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they sit and get drunk and talk about life for both of them before and after 9-11. And it's great. Oh my god, what a fucking great issue. Uh, and then he just ratchets up the, the, the everything from there. Cause I should I, have seen it. I, I don't know if you saw that Mitch Sherrard's got signed as DC exclusive this week. Mm-hmm. And in the announcement, both he and DC were like, so that means more Sheriff of Babylon. And I was like, thank fuck. Oh, good. I was afraid it was going to wrap up after. It's so funny because I thought it was going to wrap up. It was just going to be like a 12 issue limited, like the rest of Tom King's stuff. But, um, but issue five was the one because it's so open. I was like, oh, maybe he's really going to to just like, kind of do more. Maybe this is old school vertical where like it could go for five years. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And he's got the material and he knows how to open it up. But then, of course, you know, six comes and really lowers the boom. So those were fucking amazing. And then, weirdly enough, the thing that stunned me was uh, Unbeatable Squirrel Girl issue eight. Which, have you read it yet? No. Graham, you, and you read the Choose oh, Your Own I, Adventure, right? Yes. And see, I was kind of, I don't know, after choose, the Choose Your Own Adventure issue, I was like, I picked this up twice and put it down after the first page being like, oh, they're just not gonna, he's just, he topped himself. There's no way he's, he's ever going to be able to, to, to do anything half as good and as funny as that. And then fucking unbeatable Squirrel Girl is great. There were like, three or fourth like i could actually feel you know when you like realize that your face kind of feels weird from smiling so much like yeah. that was totally issue eight of unbeatable squirrel it's, girl it's just it's such a good book it's, i mean it's genuinely such a good book mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where you're like i can't believe this still exists yeah like yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm so cynical about big two comics that something this not just like good, but also like joyful and individual. Yeah. Has not been absorbed <laughs> and ruined. Like for my money, Ms. Marvel, which I loved for the first series, mm-hmm. is, is, is not ruined, but like it's not the same for me now. Mm-hmm. I just, there's something about it, especially because I, I didn't even get the new series. I waited for it to show up at Marvel Unlimited. Mm-hmm. And there's something about like the first issue is like, What's been happening in eight months? Oh, I'm an Avenger now. And I was just like, I don't care. <laughs> like, I don't actually care about the superhero part of this book at all. Right. Like, I care about the soap opera. I care about the characters. And the characters are now in this, I don't know if you're still reading, mm-hmm. but the characters are now in this, like, unconvincing love triangle. Mm. Uh, and in the midst of the first issue, there is a random artist change. Wow. In the middle of the issue, that would seem to speak to the fact that, like, there's a flashback, mm-hmm. but then it doesn't change back after the flashback. So you think that maybe it's still the flashback. Ooh, wow. And it's one, yeah, it's one of these, like, terrible, 
you know, what what actually happened here? Why are the last eight pages of this book by someone else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Things. And I was just like, yeah, this this book, which worked so well and for the majority of the first series at least, yeah, like suddenly doesn't. Suddenly feels like it's it's been pulled into, like, oh, this is a great book. Let's get more involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you that know? that is the problem and, with Marvel, and the fact and the fact that Squirrel Girl is still just inventive and funny as fuck, yeah. and um. Like really kind towards his characters. Oh God! I as mean, well, you know. It, yeah, it's it, it just it's it's such a. I like I can't imagine anyone other than Ryan North doing the book. Yes. And what's really interesting is I think I've said this before. Al Ewing, who I love, repeatedly shows in the Avengers that he cannot write Ryan North's Squirrel Girl, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he's trying. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's but hard. It's really it's, hard. It's hard because yeah. there's a genuine sincerity when North does it. Mm-hmm. And anyone trying to do it, no matter how well they try and do it, will come across as pastiche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because North, North, it genuinely is North writing from his heart. Yeah. And so he gets when to be, not necessarily crass, but like when to go for the catchphrase mm-hmm. or when to go for the, the, the joke. Mm-hmm. You know, and then seeing someone else do it, you can tell, like, the mechanics of them being like, okay, and now she's going to talk to Tippy Toe. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, it's not the same. And you can just tell it's not the same. Yeah. And yeah, there's such a, and also Erica Henderson's art is just. Oh, yeah. Spot on. Continue. Yeah. Every choice she makes for that book is smart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Henderson's great. I have to say, I, I read very slowly because there was, again, classic comicsology itis. I picked up like three of the issues of Chip Zdarsky's Jughead that I missed. Which I really like as well. It's great. And Henderson is also similarly great on it too. So, you know, she's just a really great artist and storyteller, but also I just... just her- saw that, you saw that Chip is, is leaving Jughead and being replaced by Ryan North? Oh no, really? That's funny. Yeah. I didn't see that, but that's that's actually, of course, a perfectly fine choice. I mean, because I, I actually really I, quite I, like Zdarsky on uh, on Jughead. It's oh, I I, I think he's, I think he's really good on Jughead. I, I think it, it's he's I I like him on Howard, but I don't like the Howard book. Right. Um. But but I think he's really good on on Jughead, and I think it, it's weirdly more of a fit. Yes, it is. Well, the Howard stuff is tough. I've, I only read like the first two issues or something, I think, maybe. And then I, and I've seen more pop up. It's like, I'm kind of like, okay, I really need to read all of the first run on Marvel Unlimited and they're up to like the second issue of the reboot or whatever. I was like, yeah, I should, I should check that out. But it, but Howard the Duck is one of those characters that's kind of, I don't know anyone if anyone can really, everyone can do a version of that character, but it's so hard that that character is such a minefield for me emotionally. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, it's, you know. it's yeah, but it's yeah. I, I will agree though. Unbeatable Scorer is just it's just such a good comic. You it's, should you got to get this most recent issue because it is it is awesome. It's it is just so great. There's so much good stuff in there. I really was surprised. I was like, oh, they're not going to be able to top that. And then just, they, they, oh, yeah. North is, North is a stunner. Uh, and then I guess for, um, as long as I'm talking 
talking comic books. Uh, on Comixology, I read the three parts of the Mad Woman of the Sacred Heart uh, by Jodorowsky and Mobius. Uh, Humanoids kind of took it and chopped it up into three bits and put them on sale for a buck ninety nine a pop or whatever. Oh man. Yeah, and I that that's kind of amazing. I have to say. I mean it's it's I don't know how to describe it. I mean it's classic I'm fascinated by Jordorowski's comic stuff because he's such a um he's such a uh it's almost he's his tradition of comics so clearly I think comes from like newspaper comics almost like it's sort of, do, do you know mad woman of the sacred heart? Do, do you know? No, are you familiar I, no, with it? No. So it, it starts with, it's, it's basically starts with this, uh, professor who's like this crazily successful, uh, philosophy professor at the Sorbonne and he's been he's got all these groupies who like flock around him and he's been wearing nothing but purple suits for the entire like I don't know last five years and he's written all these bestsellers and everything and he's uh, mobbed by adoring women who follow him all around and wearing purple and stuff and what ends up happening is his he, his perfect life begins to fall apart, and he uh, finds himself uh, essentially falling seduced by a student of his who's convinced that uh, he is going to give birth to the um, the next Christ, essentially the John, the Saint John, and, and she she's like a philosopher who seems to have gone off the rails and has become a religious nut and gets him like his life sort of slowly falls apart and he's constantly essentially tempted by the green man which is his id who's like hey just go sleep with her you know have some hot sex it doesn't matter that she's crazy and and he essentially ends up it's it's Jodorowsky and Mobius kind of doing like a wacky comedy very much in that sort of, you know, it's the sort of thing that Fellini would have greatly appreciated because uh, this failed, this successful academic is of course shown to kind of be a fraud. And then as he falls quote unquote in love with this woman, it, it's basically like a four, three volume, uh, a, it's almost like what's what's the Grant Morrison book? I hate your boyfriend. Oh, um, kill your boyfriend. Kill your boyfriend. It's basically kill your boyfriend, like done by Jodorowsky and Mobius, because he goes on. He is sort of forced to see the other seamy side of life, where people are either saviors or con men or both. And every time he thinks the worst about his situation and he's surrounded by lunatics, something seemingly mystical happens, but then also couldn't easily be disproven. And it's not until like finally the third volume that Jodorowsky and Mobius really doubled down on the mysticism of it. And, you know, Jodorowsky is such a, because he, he totally believes in, this idea of a redemption and a mystical awakening, but he also believes in the circularity of life. It's like people are kind of constantly, um, uh, 
achieving enlightenment for a second and then it's being stripped away and then it goes back to low humor. It's, it's basically like the mystics version of peanuts, basically, you know, and it's except drawn by Mobius. So watching Mobius just draw everything just gorgeously, all these little bits and pieces of life. It's, you know, gorgeous. It's like a gorgeous Euro art thing, but it's also very much, by the by the end of it, as you would expect, Jordorowski completely doubles down on all of his holy fool gambits. Um it's funny, but it's also really lovely and the thing about being an old blowhard like myself is like, Oh god, I can't believe I see myself in this character. This is really <laughs> fucking humiliating. So that was that was great. Those those have been my comics that I've been excited about, Graham McMillan. How about you? Uh, in absolutely no particular order whatsoever. I have said this before, uh, and I'm going to say it again right now. If you are not getting Legends of Tomorrow from DC, mm-hmm. you're probably right. However, when the inevitable trade of Sugar and Spike comes out from it, uh-huh. run, don't walk to buy that motherfucker. <laughs> it is genuinely great. Yeah. The gimmick is Sugar and Spike are the the baby characters, the classic baby characters from from the fifties, I guess, from DC, mm-hmm. who have grown up and become twenty something problem solvers for the superhero community. The problems they solve are all the new fifty two characters dealing with the embarrassment of Silver Age concepts. <laughs> so Wonder Woman has to deal with the fact that she once married a Frankenstein. Green Lantern sends him to deal with his alien sidekick, Itty. Oh, man. Like, and, and that's the stories. Mm-hmm. And they're all done in once. And they're all, they're all literally, I am the superhero who takes myself really seriously. No one can know it. It's a really embarrassing thing in my past. And in every single case, dealing with it goes incredibly wrongly. That's great. And Sugar and Spike, Sugar is just like generic Giffen heroin, i.e. she takes no shit and doesn't like anyone. Mm-hmm. And Spike is an idiot. Mm-hmm. And they just like fail to take care of this shit. <laughs> and the shit. And the story almost always is them be, having to go back to Superior and being like, it's kind of taken care of, not exactly, but it's going to be okay. No one's going to ask about it. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's such a great high concept. And it allows Giffen to just a, bring all the shit back into canon. Mm-hmm. But B, embrace that it's all dumb to begin with. Like, all of it is dumb. Right. You know, Wonder Woman inherently is stupid. Green Lantern inherently is stupid. Mm-hmm. There is nothing more stupid about having a pink plant to it as a sidekick. <laughs> or a guy with a green magic wishing ring flying through space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's just this weirdly snarky yet joyful... <laughs> romp right right which uh, it's horrendously out of place with their other stories in legends of tomorrow i mean totally not in keeping at all with the rest of the book Mm -hmm. but just a joy and also oh god what's the name of the artist i think it's bill quist evely yeah bill quist evely who did um chris roberson's first doc samson uh doc savage uh, series for dynamite Mm -hmm. and she is a motherfucker of an artist really her art is lovely. Really, really nice stuff. Um, so if this gets collected, and I'm sure it must do, because by the time the series is over, there's going to be 120 pages of material. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really going to be worth picking up. Hmm. Really. Um, Imperium, the Valiant series. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of go through periods of like, oh, I should read this again. Right. And the last time I went through it, I was like, I'm not feeling it. I'm off that and back onto the, this is one of the best superhero books around. Hmm. Tip. Uh, entirely because the last four-parter goes very much back to the, not, you know, the tradition, like, no one is the villain of their own story. Yes. Uh, this flips it. Everyone is the villain. <laughs> everyone is wrong. Mm. Because everyone believes that they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And everyone is actually wrong. Everyone is making a bad decision. Hmm. And everything they all do is leading the world to a much worse place. Mm. Um, and it's very political in that. It's not just, you know, I'm punching you. No, I'm punching you. Now we hate each other. It's, uh, oh, the world is, is slowly marching towards war mm-hmm. because the, the protagonist of the series, Toyota Harada, who is essentially God at this point, he, he has near omnipotent powers and has set himself up as I, I have taken over this African nation. Um, I've opened his borders to anyone who wants to come and join me. I am going to build utopia whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very sincere in his belief that he's building utopia. He is very sincere that anyone can join him in building utopia. Mm-hmm. But all he's doing is pushing the rest of the world towards war. And for him, he doesn't care because his very, his point of view is very much, they can all kill each other. That's mm-hmm. fine. They won't kill me. They can kill each other. Then I will be free to do what I want. Mm-hmm. And you have all the, the, the antagonists who are theoretically the good guys. Uh, th- this last four parter is, uh, Live Wire, who started off as the Harbinger series and then went through Unity. Mm-hmm. And was his student, was his prodigy. Comes back and is very much like, I have to stop you because you're doing a terrible thing. And you, you believe you're doing it for the best of the intentions, but all you're going to do is destroy the human race. Like, I have to stop you from doing this. And you just see that she's wrong as well. Hmm. She's just a tool of this uh, military-industrial complex that is scared of having this uh, this player that they can't control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so her attempt to do this, to stop him, leads to eight shipments not getting to Africa. So people will starve as a result of her actions. Wow. And so she, like, and so the last issue of the storyline is essentially she's been played and so thousands of people will die. Mm-hmm. He has also been played because he t- basically falls for the manipulation of the other governments, but doesn't give a shit mm-hmm. because he doesn't care about humanity. And various characters who are part of his team, quote unquote, are amazingly fucked up people. <laughs> Like, really, really badly messed up. Mm-hmm. It's the point where, like, one of them is suicidal, and it's just like, I I don't care what happens to me, but I want to make sure the rest of the world goes down with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have Mech Major, who is a self-aware robot, who might be an alien, whose origins are, don't make sense. And he is the only one with the, the vision to see what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And he has this soliloquy mid- midway through the issue where he's essentially like, all of you are making bad decisions. All of you are doing bad things. You're going to destroy the planet. But none of you will ever listen to me 
because it's it you're all much more interested in your egos hmm. all i can try and do is limit the damage all i can try and do is be kind and my kindness means nothing hmm. and so it's this amazingly uh smart amazingly dark book that at its heart has this character who is trying to be kind mm-hmm. and trying to to do the moral thing uh, completely aware that their morality is ultimately meaningless when you are compared with these powerful sides who who would rather be right hmm. you know and so it comes out of the last four parter which I wasn't a big fan of which was very much like Exo Man of War has aliens Toyota <laughs> and it was the aliens and I was like Oh, whatever, and then it like comes in with this. Here's a metaphor for politics. And by the way, humanity is all trudging towards disaster. Uh, people might believe they are they are doing the the best that they are doing, but they are much more interested in being correct. You know, which is just yeah. One. You know, and and to do that with, uh, without really stepping outside of the superheroic drops. So in the middle of this four-parter, you get the big superhero battle. Mm-hmm. You know, you get your elements of pyrokinetics and, and like explosions and everything. Uh, but, but the underpinning of all of it, and, and not shying away from it at all, is politics is going to inherently corrupt everyone. Mm. And politics is going to destroy everyone. And you can have the best will in the world. But... If you're entering into a realm where there are political players, they're all going to use you. It's interesting because I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, it's just like the wire, uh, and that that is of course high praise for me. I'm sort of like, huh, I I I would it, be okay it, it, with saying that. Ethereum is is an amazingly, um, ah, it's when it's good, it's great. Mm-hmm. You have the four parter like, oh look, it's the aliens, and you're like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> the first couple of collections. Uh, I, like, I think it's got three collections out right now. Uh, mm-hmm. This storyline will be the fourth collection when it's out. Mm-hmm. But the first couple of collections are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the, I guess, protagonists of the book mm-hmm. is a scientist who comes into contact with an alien intelligence. And unlike the Marvel thing, where like, they come back and they're like, I am cosmic and I can see peace. Uh, it's like Cronenberg body horror. Mm-hmm. She comes back and she has no eyes. Wow. It's like, no, I'm just using this body and I want to use this body for experiments. So you have to give me all the people. And in return, I will give you alien science that you don't understand, which will be great. But also I might decide to turn people into bombs, hmm. like just by themselves. <laughs> so the, the opening part of this four parter is live wires whole gimmick is she can talk to any uh, machine mm-hmm. and she comes across the machine she can't talk to because it is literally made of a person. Mm. This alien intelligence possessing the scientist is like no no i've made a satellite that is actually just a person wow you know so you get this weird body horror aspect of it as well Mm -hmm. it's it's really interesting playing with genre in there as well Hmm. and so yeah it's it's a a, a wonderfully enjoyable book did i tell you about reading the lucy nisley wedding book I think you mentioned it. You didn't mention it to me. Somehow, maybe it popped up on like a skip week thing or something. Because you mentioned you you had a thing where you jumped back and read some of her other work, right? Yeah. Isn't that for so, a, a column? So, uh, yeah, I, I wrote about that two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got something new: the the book about her getting married, which right. is just again almost effortlessly charming. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I do wonder who the audience is Mm -hmm. because it strikes me that if you're not either interested in weddings or have gotten married, it might just leave you cold because it is very much of the, I got married and getting married is fucking nuts and hard work and drives you crazy. Mm -hmm. Here's my story. (laughs) But because of that, like, I feel like you have to have an inherent interest in the subject in a way that like, you know, relish, you know, everyone eats. You know, yeah. or or an age of uh, of God, I can't even remember what it's called. An age of something. The travel one. Yeah, the travel one. Again, everyone has traveled, and also everyone can understand the my relationship's gone bad. I'm, you know, I'm dealing with the breakup of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like something new is very much like if you're not inherently interested in a wedding, not even marriage, a wedding, and the mechanics of a wedding. Mm-hmm. And you have no in there. You might just be like, oh, weddings are crazy, huh? Right, moving on. <laughs> um, but I, I loved it. I, I, again, I thought it was, it was super charming. Mm-hmm. Um, and very, like, I, I I did read a lot of like, oh, I remember that from my wedding in there, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which, which really helped with the charmness. I said this on Twitter last week. But I said it during the weekend because for some reason I was on Twitter in the weekend. Uh, I got the uh, an arc for Rolling Blackouts, which Jeff, holy shit, book of the year. Oh, really? Uh, do you remember Sarah Glidden who did How to what's it called How to See Israel in sixty days? I think it's called. Yes. What is it actually called? How to understand Israel in sixty days or less is what it's That's called. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's her follow up. Hmm. Uh, it's called Rolling Blackouts: Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. And it is her following uh, a group of reporters as they go through those three countries with a former U.S. Marine uh, embed mm-hmm. uh, trying to come to terms with the displacement of people because of U.S. military actions. And it is nonfiction. Mm-hmm. It is... You don't listen to podcasts, right? Basically, I do not. That is correct. You are, however, familiar with Serial. Yes. And you're familiar with the second season of Serial being about Bo Bergdahl? Uh, no, I'm not, actually. Okay. The second season is about Bo Bergdahl. Um, in, in theory, it's also very much about what is the U.S. military doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, how, how fucked up is the U.S. military's, uh, recruitment mm-hmm. and how how does it deal with things like dust ones how does it deal with with people who have uh, mental problems mm. who have signed up um but also how does it deal with the people like if, if, if the u.s is theoretically on a humanitarian mission after invading and is trying to to support the countries that it has conquered Right. Like how, how do you do that? What does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for for those people, but also for the military? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that all go together? And that's very much what Ruling Blackouts is about as well. Uh, it's a, Ruling Blackouts is a very good complement to the, to the last season of Serial because at its heart, well, there's two things at its heart. One of which is the investigation of journalism, mm-hmm. Uh Literally, on, from a mechanical point of view, how do you gather these stories? How do you find these stories? How do you talk to these people? What if you get emotionally involved with these people? Mm-hmm. Because you shouldn't get emotionally involved with these people. It's your story. 
Mm-hmm. How do you how do you believe these people? Um, but also the 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 marine they're traveling with is quite clearly going through his own shit, uh, and is either not aware of it or is not willing to share with anyone. So he repeatedly tells them that he's okay and he's not one of these people who uh, joined up and then came back fucked up. He's completely fine, mm-hmm. but he's clearly not completely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's just, it's stunning and it's so dense and so packed with information. Uh, and again, so kind. Mm. It's, it's a very, at no point does Glidden uh, create motives or even create a narrative. Mm-hmm. She, she she will insert herself even to to dispel a narrative. Mm-hmm. So you know, even though she's recreating the scenes from actually having recordings of conversations, if something comes across and like, and, and there are points where I was reading it and I was like, "Well, that just seems weird." Mm-hmm. She'll then break in and be like, "That seems weird," but here's what you don't know, hmm. and some more context to sort of undercut the the, the narrative that you think you're getting. Mm-hmm. So it's just. It's great. It's a really, really, really good book. Um, and I, I didn't even know it was coming out. Like, I did not know this book existed. Mm-hmm. And then I got the arc, and they were like, it's coming out in October. Would you like to read this early version? Like, you know, uncorrected proof, so you can't quote anything from it. But, you know, we're going to be doing promotion coming September and October. And I was just, like, I was just blown away by it. So wow. I was like, like, I'll read a couple of pages, and then three hours later, you're still reading it. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you're just like this is amazing. That sounds that sounds really great. That definitely uh, sounds worth looking also, out for. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting is the I'm trying to find the the PR that they sent with it because the documentary that is being filmed in the in the book is on Hulu apparently. Oh wow, really? Right, which is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called. God damn it! I can't find where the. the the PR mentions it. Nope, I can't find it. So I will find it and then hopefully email it to you before the show notes. That'd be great. Uh, but yeah, the documentary is apparently already on Hulu. Hmm. That they make in that you see them making the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's just it's a very it's a very dense book. It's a very serious book, even though there is humor in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just, it's one of those books where, like, before you were saying, you know, I think I'm kind of burned out in the big two. And, you know, I, I, I think this is just isn't what I'm looking for. And this is 100% the opposite. Just right. Like, yeah. You know, go from Batman Rebirth to this, and you're like, is this even the same medium? Uh, <laughs> but, but it's, it's just, it's so good, Jeff. It's so, so. Very, very good. And you remember, I liked how to understand Israel a lot as well. Mm-hmm. But this is this is a fucking leap forward. Hmm. It she, she she the self consciousness of how to understand Israel, which mm-hmm. is a, it's essentially a, a, a memoir and a travelogue. So it's mm-hmm. it's very much wrapped up in in her impressions. Mm-hmm. But the self consciousness of that book is is just abandoned. It's 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 a wonderful, wonderful book. I can't say enough good things about it. Well, I have to say that sounds fabulous. I mean, I'm trying to think of like something completely to undercut that with. Oh, I reread the uh, Keith Giffen, John Rogers Blue Beetle. 
Oh yeah, you said you were uh, going to dive in for that, and that's uh, I and remember that's enjoying a lot of that a lot. It's like fucking good comic, mm-hmm. uh, and it's funny rereading because I got all the trades from the library of that run, and when you read it in a oneer, it's only like twenty five issues or something. Yeah, but you're like, this is so concise. Mm-hmm. Like it's literally a story from start to finish. There's really not much uh, fat. Especially because in the last arc, you basically have Jaime Reyes say, oh, everything has been leading up to this because, and he then lays it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it is, it's a, it's a very concise superhero book that in many ways is I was reading it going, oh, this was Miss Marvel 10 years ago. That mm. this was, this was doing the same update on the teen superhero trope. Mm-hmm. With a very similar tone, ten years ago, mm-hmm. and, and it made me wish. I mean, I know they're reviving Blue Beetle, um, but it made me wish there were more stories like this, like teen superhero stories where the hero tells his family because, of course, he does. Yes, and the family doesn't go, "You're terrible," but instead, "Well, this scares us, but okay, I guess you're a superhero now." Yeah, you know, and and there's no melodrama about it mm-hmm. and 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 his friends are just genuinely supportive and again they don't try and stab him in the back because they're his friends yeah and yeah. they try and help out mm-hmm. and and there's there is something about it where much like you know even uh when bendis was doing ultimate spider-man and he, he had peter tell mary jane right i love that moment as well because of course you would yes yeah. Like, if you're a teenager, of course you'd tell your friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, the idea that you would keep it secret, I don't even think that made sense back in the 60s. You know, it's funny, because I feel like it does, and I can see why it doesn't now. Like, weirdly enough, walking back from La Dolce Vita, I was thinking a little bit about, oh, Christ, what was it? Uh, oh, I was I was trying to figure out just where Transformers is supposed to fit on the, the, the spectrum of, um, basically, is it like the best, uh, gay metaphor toy franchise out there? You know? Transformers. Yeah, cause, well, cause the Transformers are, kind well, of, they are more than meets the eye, Jeff. They, exactly, exactly. They're, they present as cars, but they're actually all these other things underneath. And so there's this whole idea with Transformers about being able to pass, you know, as other things and sort of that weird, like, does that change, like, the the idea of that the conception of that is that you know is like is this just me being goofy but then i was also thinking about you know x-men and the mutants and the importance of 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 x-men as mutant kind is sort of a queer metaphor um and i just find myself kind of you know fixated on the um the weirdo subtextual stuff of that but so I feel like back in the 50s and 60s, um, society, particularly, you know, pre-hippie era, is pretty repressed. And the idea of having secret lives, kind of like the Victorians, you know, in a lot of ways we had come 
a long way from there, but not nearly so much. There were lots of ways in which people had to, you know, quote unquote conform. And so there was this, this secret life was this fertile thing. And so the idea of a secret identity, I think is really rich, but yeah, sure, as you sure, point out, secret, as you go but on. But there's a secret identity, but that you can have a, a secret identity presenting to the public. But the idea is that you wouldn't tell those closest to you but is, I mean, sure, it's rife for drama, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm always unconvinced by how emotionally true it seems, you know, to have. There, there's a, uh, I, I said this when I was talking about Superman Rebirth, but there's a, a scene in there where, uh, Jonathan, who I have no idea how old he's meant to be. Let's say he's seven or ten or something like that. I have like the, the chronology of, of Jonathan confuses the fuck out of me. Um, but he's talking about the fact that his dad is Superman, and in the current like mythology, Lois is uh, still an investigative journalist, but she publishes under a pen name, and so no one knows who she is. Um, and he outright says, "Like you're you're lying." You're like you're lying to everyone, right? What? How am I supposed to feel about that when you guys tell me the lying is wrong, mm-hmm. but you lie to everyone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, like you said, how do I put it? I feel like that the the idea of the quote unquote secret identity has so shifted. Like as you point out, because I think people share more about themselves now. Kids and teenagers, I mean, they sort of did, but they kind of didn't, at least as far as when you start getting into some of that really rich sort personal of stuff. personal stuff. Yeah, exactly. You've got a lot more people willing to come out and talk about that stuff on Tumblr or Twitter or whatever, you know, and, and or show their friends and just, just the number, you know, in my lifetime, the number of out gay teenagers is changed that that has changed dramatically in my lifetime and you know i'm sure just the fact that i knew i I was from a small town and there were one or two people that were clearly gay and sort of kind of out but but even then not really you know and and i'm sure there's some towns in you know some very small town america where it's probably still not really cool for people to be out but they're i bet i bet they're out to their friends in a way that that mm-hmm. they were not nearly not just it's just not in the same way you know and the thing that's interesting to me is is i do wonder to that extent when you do ha- you know one of the very smart things that they did at the end of iron the first iron man movie is when tony stark's like yeah 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 no i'm iron man you know because that's that's the that is the culture that we're in now. Like there is a lot of like owning sort of owning your own shit in this weird way that I just feel uh makes a lot of sense to me but also kind of makes me sad cuz I always felt that the secret identity you know the more, as a kid I was just like oh it's whatever but as I grew up I'm like oh man this is such a great fertile ground for uh, people's secret lives, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and 
I think just because we're people are out and disclose more, more openly, uh, in the culture now, um, I don't think that that doesn't mean that they don't have secrets anymore, you know? Sure. But is there not a way to, to have your cake and eat it that you can have to use Blue Beetle as example? Mm -hmm. He can be quote unquote out to his parents and his friends, Mm -hmm. but that's it. Right. And so you have a level of, I mean, to my mind, that adds more complexity because what if he then has a secret that he has to keep from them? Mm Mm-hmm. A, a separate secret, a different secret. Yeah. For whatever no, reason. I, exactly. I think, I think you start pulling that stuff in, it makes a lot of sense, but it also does, you start, you start, I don't know, you know, it's, it's tough for me. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which just the, just the way that nerd culture has changed, you know, <laughs> oh, has, has a way in which a lot of that the idea of a secret identity probably could have uh, stood in for just that alone. You know, for yeah, for no, no. Well, there, I think a lot of the um, hated and feared aspect of the X Men before it was a stand-in for queer culture was a stand-in for nerd culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that I think that's an excellent point. Uh, yeah. Oh, you can... know what? You know what else I read this week, mm-hmm. and I could not tell you what put me in this direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year. Of Uncanny X-Men after Wiles Potashio takes over as artist. Hmm. And that's a weird read now. Hmm. Um, because, you know, in fact, I will tell you, now that I think about it, why I was reading it. Uh, I've also been rereading Marvel Comics The Untold Story. Mm. Um, and I reached the part where Claremont was kicked off the books. Yeah. Uh, and, and because it was Harris and uh, Potashio and Jim Lee wanting to quote unquote go back to basics. And what is interesting reading those issues in light of reading that is just how obviously they go back to basics. Mm-hmm. The first year is amazingly old fashioned in terms of plot. Uh, because you get the, first of all, you get them acting as a superhero team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get the return of a family member. You get the mysterious time traveler. You get the fake death of a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you get all these classic Claremont X Men tropes, but classic tropes from like the Burn and Claremont era. Mm-hmm. Uh, done, I, you know, fine. Mm-hmm. But but it's so amazingly obvious that like the retreads at the same time. Yeah, it's so strange. It's so strange to read those issues. Yeah, I think, you know, there is a way I know that, uh, of course, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men have the, really do have the X-Men all sewn up as far as podcasting goes. But since we've been doing, uh, the Baxter building and, and have really hit the, the, you know, the beginning of the cover band era of the Fantastic Four, it would be kind of interesting to see to sort of see that when that kicks in for Claremont's X-Men. You know? Oh, it, 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 ama- like immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to see because burn scripts like the first two, three issues. Wow. Uh, and is then off because apparently uh, like he just walked because the deadlines were stupid. 
and Scott Lobdell just takes over, and then Scott Lobdell is just there forever. Um, and Lobdell, Lobdell goes in really smoothly in terms of getting the patter down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's genuinely impressive. Yeah. Uh, but it's also not so much because Burns' dialogue is really weirdly, um, gimmicky isn't the right word. But Claremont had his foibles. There's no fucking denying that. Oh, sure. But Claremont's characters also had a different way of speaking from each other. And had a different way of speaking, especially from from the Marvel tradition. Mm-hmm. And you get burn scripting, and all of a sudden Iceman could be generic, like, wise-ass. Mm-hmm. You know? And and all the characters seem weirdly flatter, mm-hmm. almost actually. And then you get Lobdell coming in, and they just get that little bit flatter, but not significantly so. So it feels pretty smooth. Um, but there are there are parts where Lobdell then takes over plotting as well as, as scripting, mm-hmm. and he decides to go for like the big emotional issues. And again, very influenced by Claremont, mm-hmm. but his dialogue is laughably bad. Mm. Claremont, for all his wackiness, came from a genuine emotional place. Mm-hmm. And Lobdell writes like a man who might never have had a relationship in the world. <laughs> there is a, a great two-parter where Forge, at the end of one issue, proposes to Storm. Mm-hmm. And the next issue is... Theoretically, Storm flying about trying to make up her mind while Forge decides on his own that she's going to say no and then let her down easy. And the scene where he lets her down easy is just staggering. (laughs) Because, first of all, Protasio's art does not help. Storm actually looks like she might be having a seizure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I Uh, believe that. But... Basically, it's like, it's mansplaining. Forge is mansplaining Storm's emotions to her. (laughs) And she breaks down, and it ends with him leaving her. And she is on her knees, going, I would have said, yes. (laughs) It's it's amazingly bad. Yeah. So, hey, everyone who's listening to JMS Explain the X-Men, they're probably like, I mean, they're only at Inferno now, so they're at least like 50 issues away from this. Mm -hmm. So, you're months away from getting there, but when you get there, this shit will make your mind burn. (laughs) And all I've read apart from that are Star Trek, old Star Trek comics. Oh, really? Marvel or DC? The DC stuff, right? The DC stuff. Yeah. The DC uh, Next Generation stuff, which I'd never read before, even though I've had that DVD for years. Right. I have too, and also have not really touched it, so that would be it's, fun. Um, it's definitely Next Generation comics, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> They're totally fun, but you realize like the amazing limitations of the Next Generation. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I can believe that, especially somehow weirdly... More in comics form? I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of that weird. I don't know. Whatever. I mean, I I think I'm more of a, a original cast person than than a next gen person. Although I, I remember point, some good... we should we should be like fuck the Baxter building. We're gonna do 
Jeff and Grimm explain Star Trek for oh, the man. These 80 issues, cause, oh, Jeff, there's some stuff in there. Yeah? Anything you want to elucidate on, or you're going to uh, save that for the pod, the, the, the I'm going to, I'm going to save that for one point, and you should read them, and we should okay. talk about them. Because it's, because Next Generation is, uh, simultaneously amazingly conservative and incredibly holier than thou about how liberal it is. Mm-hmm. And the comic is very that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the comic is very given to, and also the stories are really weirdly long all the time. <laughs> stories are like, this is five issues, and you're like, really? Because it feels like maybe two issues. But, wow. sure, let's go with five issues. <laughs> uh, and, but they're, but they're, they're given to, you know, and that's why love is okay as long as it's okay. <laughs> and you're like, really? We're on the snow planet, but you know, global warming is real. It's the Ferengi, let's blow them up. <laughs> I, I was also reading the, um, the, the DC, the second DC series. So like the last DC series, which came out after oh right, was the last film Star Trek Six, mm-hmm. um, and all the stories take place between Star Trek Five and Star Trek Six. And you know what's genuinely great about that? Uh, the number of stories where the characters are literally like, "Well, we're not young anymore." Mm. There is an amazing amount of plots which basically revolve around we were great when we were young, but now we're old. And I'm not being sarcastic. There's something weirdly refreshing. Like, there's an entire two-parter where Scotty and Bones are like, let's have an adventure. We used to have adventures. Let's have an adventure. And then they just fuck everything up. And then Sorius then basically being like, let's never have an adventure again. We that's were great. shit to survive through that when we were kids. Wow. That's really funny. Uh, hmm. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, well, that, again, it's like, yeah, the Star Trek comics, oh, the Star Trek comics. Right? Uh, yeah. I yeah. honestly don't know why I was like, I've got this DVD that I've had for years, I'm going to read them now. Right. Well, I, oh, oh, there's one other thing I've been reading, and I've said this on Tumblr, and I'm going to tell you, because I know, I'm pretty sure you still have access to them. Um, if you're not reading Judge Dredd, Judge, Judge Dredd right now, mm-hmm. you should be. Mm-hmm. And you should go back to Prague 1977 onwards. Hmm. Uh, because they kill off Dread. Mm-hmm. And then the, the magazine in 2000 AD get in, in the same continuity. Wow. To tell a story which looks like it's one thing. Mm-hmm. And then with the issue that literally just came out, it turns out to be another story altogether. And it's great. It's one of the sleight of hands we are like, oh, you motherfuckers. It all makes sense. And that's amazing. Wow. Cause, cause they're very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, remember Trifecta where they're like, exactly. Oh, it's a crossover and we didn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like that, except of this course at this point, it's been a crossover. I kind of want to just spoil it for you. Uh, why don't you hold off? Cause honestly, I remember reading something on, on the Tumblr thing and I'm like, oh, they did kill Dread. That would be amazing to check out. Like that sort of is the point of like, I should jump back and do this. They, they kill Dread and there's, there's two political fallouts from it, mm-hmm. which are, um, and one of them has been a long time coming, which is after Day of Chaos. Mm-hmm. 
there aren't enough judges. <laughs> there just are not enough judges to keep Mega City One safe. Right. And so Mega City One has to enter into a partnership with Texas City. Mm-hmm. And basically, Texas City uh, judges appear to keep the, the law mm-hmm. in Mega City One. And they disagree with what the law is, mm. which is interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is, uh, I think it's called Britsit, whatever the, the, the British, whatever the UK is in, in Judge Dredd mythology, mm-hmm. um, has wanted to extradite Dredd and James Joyce, uh, Judge Joyce, sorry. Um, no, he's, he's Garth Ennis character based on James Joyce. Come on. Um, wow. But, they, but they've wanted to extradite the two of them for years based on a, a former thing. And with Dread dead, and because Mega City One has to suddenly start playing nice with everyone, mm-hmm. they extradite Joyce. And Joyce gets to the UK only for people to er- all try and kill him. Hmm. And they're like, oh, we only wanted to extradite you because we wanted you dead. Like, fuck the idea of actually giving you any sort of, you know, trial. We're just going to try and kill you. Hmm. And so he's stuck in the UK going, oh shit. <laughs> How, how do I stay alive? Hmm. And then there's a, a further development where everything comes together and you really are left going, you motherfuckers. Wow. Well, that's great. That's great. I should definitely, like you said, I should try and get a hold of those because that does I sound good. That's up very soon because I want to say that the, the plot reveal in the last issue is going to be spoiled in promo for the upcoming storyline. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's one of those like, you won't believe this has happened. <laughs> right. And I'm fairly sure that like they will just say it in, in promo. Sure, sure. Hmm. But for those who like the fact that Dread, as a strip, historically is unafraid to fuck with its own status quo, and also likes to play the long game, like Michael Carroll, who's been writing both the magazine in 2008 right now, um, is is just going hell for leather with that right now. Sounds fabulous. Sounds fabulous. I, I highly recommend that for anyone who likes the, the Judge Dredd stuff. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, I think maybe we're at the end of things, Graham. I think, we're done. I think we're done two hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there oh. we have it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to do the traditional bit in that case. Uh, hi, everyone. You might be looking for where, more of that Wait What magic. And who can blame you? <laughs> I'll tell you where to find that Wait What magic. WaitWhatPodcast.com. That's where you get show notes for this episode. And get this, for all the other episodes. I know. And if you're listening to Baxter Building, there's show notes for that as well. Can you believe it? <laughs> I can't. And... Jeff and I are the ones who are doing it. That's also, right. there's um, written posts by myself, by Mr. Jeffrey Lester, and by Mr. Matthew Terrell. I don't even know if he is Matthew or just Matt. I'm going to go with Matt, but yeah, let's, let's, yes, we can. He goes with Matt, but I'm going to go with Matthew. Matthew okay. Terrell. He's, he also writes written posts for there. Um, there's also the Tumblr, waywalkpods.tumblr.com, which is full of stuff, stuff that I find and put up. <laughs> And occasionally stuff that Jeff finds and put up there. I, uh, I haven't, you know, Graham, I have to say, I have a problem with the Wait What Tumblr, which is you never identify yourself. So it's just I kind of become know. your Tumblr. And then... You identify yourself when you put it up there. Uh, I, I identified myself the other day and I can't remember why. Yeah. So I was saying something that you were going to disagree with. And I was like, I know I have to say this is me. 
Yeah, which I appreciate. Oh, was I it? To say. Uh, I do not remember. I don't remember. It was. But yeah, there, there was something where I was like, yeah, Jeff does not agree with me in this, and so I have to identify myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember what it was. But yeah. Uh, so now, now, whenever someone says something terrible, it's Jeff. Puppies. Always. It's always Jeff. All the mean ones is Jeff. Yeah. Um, although I'm also currently rereading, uh, I think it's called Comics War. Mm-hmm. The, the book about, um, Ron Perlmutter and Ike, uh, Ike Perlmutter and Ron Perlman fighting over Marvel in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And so do not be surprised if quotes from that show up in the Tumblr sometime this week. That would be great. That would be great. Um, yeah. So, so, anyway, there's the Tumblr, you guys. Mostly me. Occasionally Jeff, even though Jeff is grumpy because I don't identify myself. Shane's is probably me. Unless Jeff says it's him. Unless, uh, yeah. Yeah, because I'm the guy who has to identify himself. Sure. Yeah, you are. Because otherwise it's me. That, that makes sense. <laughs> we, have, we have a Twitter. At Wade One Podcast. Uh, Jeff has a Twitter at LazyBastard at L-A-Z-Y-B-E-S-T-I-D. I have a Twitter at Graham M at G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Yay. We are Patreon supporters. We uh, have a Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash Wade One Podcast. Thank you very much for all who uh, give their pennies. It's genuinely appreciated, even though Jeff and I sound like insincere bastards normally. It really genuinely is appreciated. Um, and Jeff is going to say what he needs to say by law. That's and right. That's yeah. right. Imperial Edict says that I must acknowledge the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios for their continuing support of this podcast. Uh, we also have very special thanks to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for keeping us all safe. Uh, and to all... 129 of our supporters on Patreon who make this uh, all possible. I, I have to say, Graham, I've gotten to the point where I'm always antsy about announcing when, how many supporters we have because invariably – Because it changes. It goes, Yeah, it goes right. up and down. I think we should just say, like, thanks, everyone. And I, think, would, I think like, we should. It's like, thanks, Empress Audrey, thanks, for- Ninth Art Studios, and all of our supporters because every time, every time, I'd say that number – from the time we record to the t- time that it actually gets posted, and that's one or two like people two drop days. out. Yes, it's not a very long period, but it's as if people know. Like I say it, and somebody like has their 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 podcast sense starts tingling, and they immediately go to Patreon and be like, uh, "No, I can't support these guys anymore." <laughs> totally understandable. Not yes. understandable. Patreon supporters, just stay with us. Stick with us, people. Yeah, please. Uh, also, Empress Rodri, you, again, don't listen to podcasts, but uh, I listen to the Guardians Politics podcast, and they are sponsored, like every other podcast on the fucking planet, by Squarespace.com. Mm. Um, and they have this this jingle after they do the Squarespace thing, where it goes, Squarespace, Square. Uh, and I was like, we should have like a total jingle for Empress Rodri, because if ever anyone deserves some sort of Empress Rodri jingle. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, we should, uh, we should whip something up. Because, you know, Empress Audrey is the ruler of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just saying, we're kind of letting Empress Audrey down by not having a jingle. <laughs> That's In the future, it might happen. It might not. I'm just, I'm just throwing the idea out there. You're throwing the idea out there. If anyone wants to do an Empress Audrey uh, theme song, by all means, send it our way, and we will be very excited to to. What would it sound there. like? I'm, I'm imagining, like, some sort of... Uh, like pastoral folky thing. 
Yeah, ooh, that would be great. One of us has got to be able to do a good Donovan imitation, like Donovan's spoken word. You know. <laughs> that must be you, because I know it's not me. I, it's been so long since I've done it, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull it off, but it would be lovely. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I, next, next time we do a Wait Wide People, Jeff's going to do some spoken word poetry. <laughs> it's going to be Wait Wide Slam right here. Oh, man. Slam Jam. <laughs> slam Jam sounds like Slim Jim, but like... For no reason whatsoever, I was going to start this episode off by quoting the Beastie Boys to you. Really? Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah, earlier on. Um, I can't even think what this, the song is. It's the one that starts off with him going kicking lyrics right to your brain when you hear the saying, you'll go ride a train. And I don't know why that was in my head, but I was like, if I say that to Jeff, is he going to know what I'm talking about? No, and the answer is no. The answer is it's, no. Um, it's Triple Trouble. It's Triple Trouble off the Five Burrs album. It's the one that, that samples, uh, shit, Chic, Good Times, I think. Oh, yeah? Hmm. Yeah. It's awesome. You should listen. I should. I, I will go and check out Radiohead, and you can go and check out the Beastie Boys, and a world will wonder why we're still stuck in the 1990s. <laughs> Indeed they shall. Indeed they shall, Graham. Um, I, wait, have we, have we gotten through all our, our normal yeah. good night information? I think, I, think, wow. I think we have, yeah. Holy crap. Hey, people, thanks very much for listening. This was, I think, a classic Wade Watt in that it took us half an hour to get to comics. That's right. But that's, that's why you people check in. I know that because I've had more than one person check in with me about the fact that I told a cat story at the beginning of last episode. <laughs> <laughs> and all I'm saying is, Jeff, if we ever want to, like, branch out, mm-hmm. doing a cat podcast, I think, would be great for our brand. Cat what? Well, definitely if it's your stories. I'm not sure. I'm not sure meow, if my cat meow, stories meow, are. Meow, meow. See, there we go. We just need to get that. We just meow, need to get meow, you meow, saying meow, that for meow, like, meow. yeah. Graham McMillan musically meowing. Ugh, alliteration at its uh, alliterative. So, <laughs> everybody, I guess we're back next week with a Baxter building. Um, we are. Which means that Jeff and I are going to have to read Fantastic Four issues. Yeah. Do you remember which ones? Some of them. <laughs> Perfect. Some? I, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's some comics. Let's see if I actually put it's it in like the show notes last time. I, I honestly... Seven through one... Fifty... Yeah, that? it is. Are we not going through one fifty? Well, yeah, oh, wait. Well, because we got... we Wait, okay. One thirty-four through one forty-six is what we did last time. So... It's going to be like 147 through like 160, 159. I don't remember. Let's see. Come on. Boom, boom, boom. You can tell me. Jeff, play for time. Hey, everyone. So I didn't get to talk about Platinum End this time, and it's probably just as well because I didn't have a lot to say other than it's really a book that I'm pretty sure that Graham isn't following. Otherwise, he would be complaining about it lots. Because it's a lot of the stuff in Oba and Obata's work that I think everything that you would think of as more objectionable in some ways in their work taken even uh, further, farther, I guess. I'm really kind of amazed. On the one hand, it's there. It's been a long, slow ramp up, but they're finally getting to sort of 
various levels of sort of Death Note-like complexity in terms of them trying to map out all the different ways that these battles of angel-anointed humans who are trying to compete to become God can uh, fuck each other up, uh, especially because they have a super villain character who is super smart and crazily unstoppable. But in a lot of ways, the thing that's weird about Platinum End is it feels like it's very much the, um, it's, it's, it's like the Michael Bay version of Death Note. I don't know how to put it other than that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's more aggressively uh. stupid, I suppose. Like, you know, insouciantly so, I think. But e- even, even the, even the complexity, which is, which is head scratching. There's a few points where you literally want to write, break out a notebook and try and sketch some of these things so that you can follow them along has a certain meatheadedness to it. So if you like uh Obata's art, it's kind of amazing that it's 99 cents a month and I don't think there's been a s- single episode that's been less than like 40 some odd pages. But on the other hand, it's an amazingly strange betrayal of Death Note by the Death Note creators. It's really fascinating. I'm I'm hoping that I will either write about it soon or figure out a way to corner Graham about it. But he was way too um, evasive. He was too busy talking about all the good comics that he actually read for me able to try and bust it out and, and, and think about it out loud. So, But you still got it in there. All I'm going to say is, Jeff, the fact that I love you so much just means that my faves are indeed problematic. <laughs> hey listeners you were I, the reason i showed up and jeff did that was so i could tell you that it's a fantastic force 147 through 159 147 through 159 that's good to know that's good for jeff to know because he's going to have to start reading some ff this week so yep and we get to the end of the jerry conway run in that yeah that's right i keep thinking that he leaves after 150 but you made it sound that he sticks around for a little bit he more. sticks around for a bunch just yeah. to share his jerry conwayness Oh dear. Oh Chilling dear. with Conway. <laughs> Convoying with Conway. Oh, there you go. Convoying with Conway is good. I was, I was gerrymandering with Jer. No, that probably Oh, see, that'll work. work. Mm, not really, I think. Isn't gerrymandering when you like take voting districts and you like slice them up into weird shapes so that Just one party can dominate? Just wait and see what with the, the, the great refuge. Just wait. <laughs> that that Just would wait. be great. That would be awesome. It's like, okay, who do you support? Black Bolt or Maximus? Uh, Black Bolt, you're in District B. Uh, how about you? Black Bolt or Maximus? Uh, I'm kind of undecided. Okay, District B, you know, um, that would be awesome. I gotta admit, there's. See, that's the thing about something like Squirrel Girl is there's so much. It's the dating issue, Graham. So you have to you have to pick it up. It's <laughs> brilliant. It is so brilliant. But uh, oh my god, just so good. Anyway, uh, Graham, uh, do you do you want Jeff. to sing us out? Yeah, I do. I want to sing us out. Bye. Ta-da. Okay. Fabulous. I think that was a classic way of one episode.